0: This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it can't be complained about by my co-host, John Syracusa. I'm Dan Benjamin. This is episode number 66. It's Friday, May 4th, 2012. I want to say thanks very much to our three sponsors today, Tap Typing, Squarespace, and Textastic tell you more about them. As the show goes on, we want to also say thanks to a friend of uh, 5x5, Jory Raphael, who does all of the amazing uh, show artwork uh, that you see on 5x5. He did the logo, among other things. Well, he has an awesome icon set called Symbolicons.com, and uh, he is the one secretly providing and subsidizing our bandwidth uh, for this uh, month. So go check out Symbolicons.com. Thanks very much to him for doing that. John.
1: Greetings, sir. How are you? I went back to programming.
0: Yeah, why not? It's what you do. It's what you do best. Might be. Pearl it up. (laughs) Right? That's
1: what I was doing.
0: All right. You want to do a show? Sure, why not? How are you? Doing fine. Feels like a long time since we've done a show. Has it just been a week? Seems like a lot longer.
1: Just a week. Get got another one of those shows today.
0: What does that mean?
1: Shows that are just saturated with follow-up. Oh, that's
0: that's your favorite kind of show, though, no?
1: It's kind of getting becoming a mix now, because a lot of the follow-up things, like, if you're following up on something that's from, like, last year, is that still follow-up, or are you talking about a new thing?
0: If you've ever mentioned it before, then by definition, it is follow-up.
1: Yeah, on the on the long graph, it seems like everything eventually is follow-up, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, that no, that makes sense.
1: In the long term, we're all dead, Dan. All right. On that note, let's start. All right. Start with some small ones, some follow-up appetizers. Uh, Michael Degusta wrote in to say that in all his listening on 5 by 5 about WWE stuff, across several different shows, lots of different people talked about it, he didn't hear anyone mention the idea of pre-announcing the on-sale date and time. Now, I listen to a lot of these shows too, and I, I thought this was actually mentioned by someone, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't mentioned by me. So in that regard, at least he's right. Uh, but the idea is that if these tickets are going to sell out, the least Apple can do uh, is announce like, okay, in two weeks, the tickets are going to go on sale at 8 a.m. Eastern time, whatever, so that people around the world can decide then to stay up late or whatever. Instead of sleeping in their beds with their cell phones next to their head, hoping they're going to be notified by some sort of alert system, just simply pre-announce the date. And that would give a more fair shot to everybody who wants to just clamor to get the tickets immediately. I'm not sure why they don't do that other than Apple's usual policy of never pre-announcing anything. They tell you when they're available and then they're available. And I'm also not sure for uh, how much... How much happier that would make everybody involved? I don't know. I guess it would make the people on the other side of the world happier, but would they really be happy if they stayed up until 3 a.m. and still didn't get tickets? So there's that downside as well. But it's it's worth mentioning that the idea of pre-announcing the on-sale time, even though that's definitely not an Apple-style thing to do. We'll see next year if they consider that. Uh, Maurice Kelly has a little bit of follow-up about, we're talking about things for sale and the ios app store that can only list their requirements based on what features they want but not based on the actual model of a phone or whatever so there was an example of a game that only ran on the 3gs but there was no way for the developer to specify that because uh, you can only specify the features that you want and someone wrote in subsequently saying well if you just simply specify that you need a front-facing camera that would eliminate for example the ipad one from contention, even if you're, you know, you don't need a camera for your game, if you just list that as a requirement, then you will eliminate the iPad 1 from the in, from the requirements sidebar. And then someone else wrote in, uh, and I think I agreed with the idea that Apple might frown upon that practice of, you know, saying, well, okay, my game doesn't really need a front-facing camera, but I'm going to list it in the requirements anyway just to get the result I want on the website because I don't want people being confused by uh, the requirements that make it seem like You can run this on your iPhone 3G or on your iPad whenever when you can't. And so Maurice Kelly points out that Apple itself, uh, he uh, does this with iPhoto. He was prohibited from buying iPhoto for iOS uh, because he lacks a front-facing camera. Now, I don't know if iPhoto uses the front-facing camera. Like, can you take a picture from within iPhoto? It seems like you probably can't. You can take it from the Photos app, I guess, but. If Apple itself is not beyond doing this, that doesn't mean that developers are free to do it as well. But I guess this is something developers can experiment with. If you want to waste two weeks of your life, submit your game with the requirement that says you need a (laughs) french facing camera and see if the person who looks at it says, sorry, rejected, your game doesn't actually use the camera, please send it back with different requirements. I'm not sure how many people want to run that experiment. Uh, I think it was last show when I was complaining about the new Gmail... UI. I mentioned that contacts were hidden away inside Gmail and that there wasn't a separate contacts.google.com theoretical site. Apparently there is. Emmerich writes in to tell me that there are there is a contacts.google.com and he uses it all the time. Uh, And it's been around forever but I've never actually used it. So there you go. If you're looking for your contacts and you can't find them in Gmail, just go to contacts.google.com and you will find them.
0: It's there. I see friends, family, acquaintances and circles. And then there's something called most contacted other contacts are you are your google contacts a mess i don't pay any attention to them i mean I, I never use this stuff
1: mine are a mess like i have a fighting chance kind of of managing my contacts in the address book but my google contacts are just a big hairy mess and i cannot figure out what the problem is and it, it bothers me a lot because i would like to you know the original complaint with Google Contacts was like, oh, every time I email somebody, it adds them to my contacts list. So Google said, okay, we can fix that. Well, I had an option that says, uh, please don't add people to my contacts when I email them. But that's not the solution, like because then they don't appear in your autocomplete history. What you want to have is, don't add every single contact I email to my address book, but do add them to the autocomplete list in case I want to email them to the end. again. And... Uh, I actually haven't tried turning it off because I do want the autocomplete to work. I just basically ignore the contacts. But it bothers me when I go into my contacts and I see it just a big mess with like a million duplicates. and Just knowing,
0: knowing it's out there bothers you.
1: Well, here's the, here's the practical effect of it. Somehow, I don't know how this happens, but I'll, I'll be looking at like my, my adium, or adium, as the developers say, buddy list. And I'll see a window with a, a bunch of chat from somebody and I'll have the wrong name next to them. It'll say, like, Bob Smith, but I will see a bunch of chat from somebody who I know is not Bob Smith, and I'll say, what the heck is going on? So I'll, like, right-click in the in the buddy list and see what the deal is, and I will find that, that there's an ADM contact that has 8,000 email addresses, Gmail email addresses, and I- IM names under it, and some random alias, you know, that says Bob Smith. I'm like, what, who, why does this contact have all these people's uh, Gmail and Gtalk and AIM addresses? And, and then it says Bob Smith. This is, these are like 17 different people. And then I'll go to my Google Contacts list and I'll find, sure enough, I found a contact called Bob Smith that has a thousand email addresses attached to it and a whole bunch of AIM addresses attached to it. I don't know how that thing came to be and why it has all these things attached to it. Uh, you know, like literally 50 to 100 Email addresses, Gmail addresses, gtalk things, and aim names attached under some random name. So I delete it, I clean it all out, and I forget about it, and then it comes back. I'm always afraid that I'm going to be talking to someone. No, I, think, oh, I think I'm think i talking to one person. I'll be talking to someone entirely different. You know, i got to keep right-clicking my contacts to make sure I know who they are. So Google Contacts angers me. I haven't quite figured it out. We didn't need that sidebar there. Alright. <laughs> next next <laughs> one. Uh... Here's an email from Jason Gregory, who was nice to point out that his name, which is spelled G-R-E-G-O-R-I, is pronounced like the first name Gregory, but not like Grigori, which is exactly how I was going to pronounce it. He says, for some reason, everyone wants to put a big emphasis on a second G. So I wanted to, too. I don't know why. I see G-R-E-G-O-R-E. I want to say Grigori, but no, it's Jason Gregory. So thank you for the pronunciation guide. Uh, He says that when I was talking about WWDC and how you get to talk to Apple developers and stuff, he says he went to WWC last year for the first time and didn't really get to do that. He says, I'm kind of shy and didn't know anyone else there, let alone well-known personality like you guys. I'm going again this year and I was wondering if you'd give me some advice on about talking to Apple developers. So there's two parts to that. The first thing is what I was talking about when I said you know, developers want to go to WWC to talk to, to the Apple engineers. You can make an appointment to see an Apple engineer about a specific topic where you sit down in the lab with them and look at your source code and ask them your specific question. So, like, it's nothing to do with social anything. It's like they have an actual... I don't know how hard it is to get those appointments. Maybe maybe they're, it's difficult to get them. But I bet during the course of the week, you will be able to get a slot with an appointment with the person, you know, with a, with a particular person that you want to talk to. Maybe you don't know them by name, but you just say, hey, I need someone to help me with core data. Uh, which, by the way, in the previous show, I thought I was saying core data the entire time. And apparently, I was saying core foundation. Which is also a thing, but it was not what I meant to say. Mouth and brain not connected. Uh, so... <laughs> So that's the first thing. You can actually make appointments in the labs and you will get to talk to an Apple engineer. Just you one-on-one by appointment, no social anything necessary. Now, the second thing is I'm totally the wrong person to talk to about how to socially find Apple engineers and talk to them. Because I don't know most of their names. And I'm I'm just lucky enough that some of them might happen to know my name and I get to talk to them. So that is... Uh, if you're not a social butterfly and don't know how to navigate that world and make friends with people and stuff, it may be difficult to find the people you want to talk to in, in a sort of organic social setting. Because before and after they give, their, they give their talks, I mean, usually after someone gives a session, you can kind of hang around and talk to them for a few minutes. But really, like the room is going to be used for another session and they've got somewhere to be and it's not, it's not the ideal environment. I, I don't know what advice to give you to try to find people outside of a structured environment. So I would say make an appointment in the labs. Try to hang out afterwards to talk to someone you're interested in, but maybe just say like, hey, can, is there any time you can talk with me later if they just gave a talk about something you have more questions to or maybe they can direct you to someone else. At the end of every session, they also have a slide that says if you have any questions, email such and such a person who's usually not the person who gave the presentation but is some representative of this group or whatever. So write down those email addresses and make contacts. And maybe I guess the only thing I suggest is start following... Apple employees and Apple developers and people indirectly related to them on Twitter and start communicating with them that way in a nice and respectful, constructive manner. And maybe they will notice your niceness and constructiveness and interest and you can form some kind of relationship with them 140 characters at a time and then maybe say, hey, I'm going to WWDC. Will you be there? Blah, blah, blah. That's one way you might be able to get to know people if you are also very shy and don't know how to do it. Because that's one of the great things about Twitter, I think, is that it's, one, it's a medium where you can end up having person-to-person contact with people you would never otherwise have contact with. Like They're never going to answer your email. Their, your email then probably goes to some sort of handler or PR firm because they're too big or famous. I'm talking about like celebrities or whatever. But on any random day, some celebrities are, are very needy people. And they will say, you know, I'm up late at night and I'm a famous celebrity. Ask me anything and I will answer your questions. And it's 3 a.m. where they are and it's a normal time where you are. And you tweet them something and they tweet you back. And you just had a 140 character exchange with a famous person who you would never have contact with otherwise. Uh, that's not so useful for celebrities, but for Apple engineers, again, you're never... How would you know this person even worked at Apple or, or who they were or whatever? But you can find them through social networks on Twitter. And sometimes they're bored and 140 characters is not a big commitment. And again, they would probably never answer an email. If you emailed them directly, they would redirect you to developer technical services or whatever. But on Twitter, they might send you a reply about something. So give that a try. But I will reiterate, asking me for advice on uh, social things is probably not a good one. <laughs> so iLounge has a one of those typical rumor stories that we start to see about, like, what is the next iPhone going to look like? And I thought this was... Uh, noteworthy not because i lend any particular credence to it I remember all the wedge rumors last year and we've got all these liquid metal rumors going around and so this is the season of every possible rumor about the phone you could imagine uh, i linked to it in the show notes though because i thought it was a nice sort of summation of the rumors that we've talked about elsewhere if you were to combine them all together and say what could this kind of look like they did some nice pictures of it um so they the one that they did was uh bigger, you know, a taller screen, as we discussed, uh, but also thinner. And they put a metal back on the phone instead of a glass one, and they made, you know, said the glass is stronger and stuff like that. But the the thing I took away from their little mock-ups was that if you make the iPhone a little bit bigger, but you get some thinness in return for that, it does, it makes the phone look new. Uh, and the bigness of it, like it's not, you know, humongous like some of the Android phones, but the bigness of it is... Compensated, I think, by the thinness. And it kind of makes the existing phone look squat and fat, which is usually what you want from new Apple hardware. You want it to make the old one look crappy. So just seeing that, you know, the mock up they have of this fantasy phone that they, it's not, and it's not a ridiculous fantasy. It's only two millimeters thinner, right? But they did it in, you know, a 3D rendering program, and I'm assuming it's all to scale. And they they made the, the screen taller, but not wider. And it's a four inch diagonal screen now, right? Just looking at that and then looking at, you know, my wife's iPhone 4S sitting here. Already, it starts to look old. So I think a design like that, a larger phone that happens to be a little bit thinner, would be visually successful in making people feel that their old phone is crappy and they need a new phone. And it doesn't look too gargantuan. Uh, And the other exciting thing about this, and I think one of the reasons a lot of people sent it to me, is that they put a new dock connector at the bottom in this rumor thing, too. They made it like a smaller dock connector with fewer pins, and it looks looks very similar to the speaker holes at the bottom of the, the iPhone 4S. Uh, where it's a kind of like a, um, a rounded rectangle or a pill shape. I don't know if that's likely at all, or you know, there's no technical details. It could just be another fantasy, but you know, I don't like the existing dock connector, so I say thumbs up to that rumor. I hope if they, Apple produced a phone exactly like that rumored phone, I would be completely satisfied with it, and I think it would be awesome. So go for that, Apple. Uh, oh, speaking of fantasy prototype things, here's one... I tried to chase down the origin of this and I kind of went around in circles and it's very confusing to me because I don't understand the internet, apparently. <laughs> but this is a YouTube video uh, showing a new prototype of a way to type on the iPad. Did you see that video? I did not. I tweeted it uh, the other day. I'll send it to you now. Where are Is you? it not going to be in the show notes? It is in the show notes. Oh, that's right. You can just look at the show notes. Yeah. There you go. So do you see the iPad prototype thing? I was trying to say, like, who made this prototype? So when you go to the YouTube video... You can see, uh, it seems like it's the... Let me turn off my speakers before this gets noisy. Yeah. You can see that this looks like the original, like the original video or whatever, but then at the bottom it says, I just saw Daniel Hooper's iPad keyboard demo. What are are you... aren't you daniel hooper The 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 youtube username is daniel chase hooper like i can't figure out did he make this <laughs> why would he write in his own description that he just saw his own it's confusing to me
0: be, because he was trying to promote it and hoping that people who link this up would that text copy be, and paste the text yes yeah. it's like social it's, he's, he's writing it for you you should follow me on twitter kind of thing like oh i can just copy and paste this that's why
1: yeah, and I did, I saw this originally, uh, Daniel Jock had tweeted it, and he uh, sent it from one of those, you know, reblogging sites, and the reblogging site had basically copied and pasted the same yeah. thing. There, This thing is urging everyone to file a bug report as a duplicate of an existing radar to say you should do this thing. So anyway, uh, have you been looking at this video here?
0: Yeah, I had not seen this before, and uh, the tech selection is what jumps out at me as being pretty cool.
1: Yeah, that's the the big pitch here is that it's annoying to place the cursor in iOS. You know, you got to put your finger on the thing, you got to hold it down and the little magnifying glass comes up and you swipe around and then if you want to select, you hold down on the thing and the pop-up comes and you hit select uh, and then you move the little lollipop things to select stuff and this solution in this video is that you can move the cursor. I think you believe you could do this on uh, WebOS or you can tell me, couldn't you swipe like in the little swipey area on WebOS to move the the cursor left to right? Uh, I don't know. I, I'm pretty sure you can do that in Palm OS with a stylus, where you yeah. can swipe in the graffiti area to move the cursor. So here, here it is. Like yeah, you, their, that it was just for backspace. I don't think it was while well selecting. Right, so this this is moving the cursor by, by either holding down the, a modifier key on the keyboard and then sliding your finger across the keyboard or doing double finger slide across the keyboard. Basically, it allows you to move the insertion point by making, by, by making scrolling-type gestures on the keyboard area as if it were a trackpad. And as if, you you know, you were moving the cursor on a screen, but it moves the insertion point when you do that. And you can move it quickly and slowly if it's moving, you know, to basically changing the scale, scaling between how far you move your finger and how far the insertion point moves. And obviously, the guy doing this demo is an expert at the system he's created, but it's impressive looking and exciting to me because I am extreme an extremely impatient computer user. I don't know if this is a class of people who fall into this category, but I... I've been like this since I was a kid. So I, I remember get when I had my first Mac, you know, the Mac one twenty eight K and everything, which granted was a dog slow machine. But even on the Mac Plus and the SE thirty or whatever, the way I would use the computer is that I would, you know, I would arrange my Finder just so, and I would have everything set up. And when I wanted to navigate into my games folder that I had in some subfolder or whatever, back back in the day, people who don't know this, you could have bring, you could have put the folders on your Mac anywhere, anywhere you wanted. The only one you couldn't touch is the system folder, but everything else was you know fair game so I had this little world I'd created on my computer where the stuff was and I would double click a folder and then it would do that little rubber band animation and you know draw the new window and by the time the new window drew I would have my cursor poised over the spot where I knew the next icon I wanted to click was and the same thing with dialogue boxes if I went to you know save or something I would have my cursor poised over the button that in the dialogue box so that when the dialogue appeared I was exactly over and I would just hit click so from my perspective, I'm going through this interminable wait, like, I've sent a command that I know is going to produce a dialog box. Now I'll bring the cursor over to where I know the dialog box will appear so that when it eventually appears, the button I want to press will be vanilla my cursor. Now I wait. Tap, tap, tap. Seeing some little animation. Tap, tap, tap. Yes. The 8 megahertz CPU or whatever it was. It's grinding away. Okay. Rubber banding. It's drawing the window. It's drawing the title bar. Drawing the buttons. And click. That's what using a computer was like to me as a kid. I was like, I cannot believe how slow these things are. And when people like my uncle and my grandfather would come over and ask me to show them something on the computer and they would say, we can't see anything. By the time any window drew, I had already dismissed it because I had already clicked whatever button I wanted to click in it. So I was just like, the computer spent most of its time partially drawing windows and then I would click as soon as I knew that the window could accept input even if it hadn't completely drawn. So this is, and I still feel this way. And this comes up in iOS because that weight, when you press your finger down to place an insertion point, feels like forever to me. It feels like, oh, my God, what am I doing? I guess my brain will start thinking about something else now. Hmm, what am I going to have for dinner today? And, what, you know, when am I going to pick the kids up? And gonna, oh, oh, it's now I see it's, it's put up the little magnifying glass. Now I can move the insertion point. So this type of thing where there is no delay because it doesn't have to distinguish between tapping and tapping and holding uh, makes me very excited. But as I said on Twitter when I tweeted this, my fear is that Apple is not particularly gung-ho about indirect input on the iPad. Like the whole deal with the iPad is you touch where you want to do stuff, which is why when you want to place the insertion point, you jab your finger between the two letters where you want to push the insertion point. And they don't really care that you have to wait for a delay because they're not most people are not crazy, impatient computer users like I am. But this thing is like, now your keyboard has become a trackpad and it's indirect. It's indirect input. It's different than like people saying, "Oh, they have the iOS gestures and stuff." They do, but those are kind of like universal, like pinched together to go back to the home screen. It doesn't really matter where you do that. It's not like you're doing it, you know, you're not doing an action in one place and seeing a real-time reaction someplace else, as if like your finger and the insertion point are like quantum entangled, but not touching each other, right? So, I don't think they would ever make this like certainly not uh, the default uh, and. If they even included it, maybe it would be like an option like the iOS gestures. But I bet they would mostly say, no, nah, this kind of goes against the philosophy of iOS where we want direct manipulation and we don't want you fiddling with one part of the screen and and, you know, having stuff happen. It's kind of like the graffiti area where you draw your little graffiti characters in the graffiti area and then the letters appear in the insertion point. Now, obviously, the keyboard itself is an indirect input advice. You're tapping the G key. A G appears not where you tapped your finger, but. That's more of a modeling a real world thing, and you're familiar with that already. Uh, you could say the same thing. It's like, well, it's just like a trackpad. Uh, make make the keyboard suddenly appear to be a trackpad, and you can swipe the insertion point around. So I don't know. I was just very excited by this video, and I really hope Apple does something like this. And the music is neat, and the production and value on the on the video are neat too. So thanks, Daniel Hooper, if that's your real name. <laughs> <laughs> So here we go for the super distant follow up.
0: Well, let's do oh. before we do that, let's do uh our first sponsor. Okay. Do you have a preference? I know you've been listening this week, do you, is there one you'd like for me to do first?
1: I don't know what the two are. I'm I'm so behind on podcasts. I've just I'm halfway through the talk show.
0: All right. We uh we have two since we've been talking about typing on the iPad. It would make sense to start with one of our first two. And I get I guess we'll just start with uh with tap typing as our first one because here we are talking about it this is a really really cool app that uh it's a new sponsor and i really i'm really enjoying using this app myself it's uh it is called tap typing and it's a typing trainer for ios so here's the thing at touchscreens tablets these things are here to stay right they're not going away if anything people are using more and more than computers but most people have never learned how to effectively type on their ipad They either fumble around, they get discouraged, they feel like they have to go and, you know, like this guy, create a a whole different kind of keyboard. It doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to feel frustrated every time it's time for you to type something on the keyboard. And with just a few lessons, and that's what this uh, tap typing is all about, you can drastically increase your iPad typing speed, and therefore, you will increase your productivity. You'll be able to grab your iPad with supreme confidence, knowing that this is the only device that you need. You don't need to worry about bringing your laptop. You won't need it, especially when I tell you about our second sponsor, but I'm going to get ahead of myself because this is about increasing your productivity. And they have lessons ranging from beginner to advanced. They have a speed test that has global rankings so you can see how you compare with everybody else out there. And this is the part that's really cool. It tracks where your fingers hit the screen as you type and it creates a heat map of where you're making mistakes so you know what you're doing wrong. The bottom line is this. You spend time learning how to type, and that is an investment in making yourself more productive. Uh, all you need to do, you go to gettaptyping.com. Gettaptyping.com. You can see the app. You can see everything about it. You can go. It'll have the links to the uh, to the store and everything else. That's where you go. Gettaptyping.com. Very cool app.
1: The guy in the video taps uh, types really fast, and I've seen a lot of really fast iOS typists. And, Andy Anaco quite. is pretty fast. Yeah, he's been using that a lot as his uh, 11-inch MacBook Air replacement. That's, that's the way to get good practice. Also, Carnegie Hall. So, this topic, the distant follow-up that I wasn't going to talk about at all, but massive Twitter and email pressure has convinced me that it's worth doing. And lo and behold, a giant spew of notes appears on this topic, making, making this, the size of the follow-up in the show probably untenable. But, but here we go. This is Ruby motion. I, I, have you talked about this on other shows this week already? Uh, this is something that's new
0: enough. And I think the only other show I might've discussed it on would have been build and analyze, but we did not talk about it. I'm not sure if it had been announced yet, but th- this is pretty interesting. I was actually looking at it a bit more this morning, hoping, hoping that you would discuss it.
1: Yeah. So is the, the to get the story in this, first of all, I would suggest the art Technica story by Ryan Paul, uh, uh, which he interviews the person who created this and has lots of detail, and uh, he uh, actually includes the full source code to a sample application that he wrote using the tool because he's been in on the private beta. Uh, so this is this is the place to go if you just want to know what this is about, but don't want like the one paragraph summary. So right. this sh- is link is in the show notes. Uh, and now I will summarize the summary. So Ruby Motion is a commercial product that lets you develop applications for iOS. It's currently on sale for 150 bucks, but the real price is 200. So that's the business model. they sell you this development environment for making iOS applications. Uh, it's created by Laurent Sansonetti. I hope I'm pronouncing his is that, that's a is that a boy or a girl's name? <laughs> I know nothing about I, French names. I don't I'm sorry know. we don't either. I'm going to assume chat room you can help me out. Is that a boy or a girl's name? Should I just assume that it's male because it's a programmer or is that sexist? Laurent. Sounds like a, a a male name to me, but I don't know anything about French names. Everyone says boy. Okay, I feel better. Uh, he is the creator of MacRuby, the MacRuby project, which had much love in, in our past episodes about uh, developing on, on Mac OS ten and Apple's various frameworks for doing so. What were those episodes? I put them in the show. Once. It was episode 14, Dark Age of Objective-C, and episode 15, The Bridges of Syracuse County. Both discussed uh, the problems I saw in Apple's future of its development platform using Objective-C, which is a language based on C, which is low level and gives you direct access to memory and is kind of cumbersome to use and all that other stuff. Uh, so lots of people wrote in then and said, what about Mac Ruby? It lets you write uh, Cocoa applications then uh, or iOS applications in, a, uh, in using Ruby and it calls through the Objective-C things under the cover. So we talked a lot about bridges and stuff like that. Uh, and a lot of people said well you know i was saying i didn't know what apple's future for its development platform would be and i said well the guy who writes mac ruby works for apple and apple is you know sort of unofficially supporting that project uh, they they thought because he was working there and like they haven't said anything about it but maybe this is their secret thing that they're doing this is the future of their platform is it's going to be all ruby based, and we're going to come to C one year, they're going to say, okay, well, Objective-C is great and everything, but now we want you to check out Mac Ruby and and you're going to be writing your your Coco and uh, and UIKit applications in Ruby instead, calling through to the Coco APIs yeah. and you can still use Objective-C if you want, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I remember saying that it could be. Technically speaking, there's nothing preventing Apple from fully supporting this, but I seriously doubted that it would be mostly because I heard nothing and from Apple and saw nothing from Apple to indicate that they were behind this as a solution. And I heard and saw many things to indicate that it was not behind this as a solution. Even before last year's WWC, I was like, if they're going to do Mac Ruby, you would think I would see more hints in that direction. And what I saw was hints in the direction of things like Arc and tweaking Objective-C and, you know, really sort of doubling down on their, the, trying to make Objective-C better versus saying, oh, you're just going to use Ruby for everything. And so far, that's been the case. Arc was introduced the last WWDC, and they've been enhancing Objective-C and an increasing pace, and they've really committed to their compiler infrastructure, which, granted, MacRuby uses as well, but they're adding a lot of features to the Objective-C language and stuff, so I didn't see them using uh, MacRuby. Um, now, uh, MacRuby was created in 2007, and the person who created it, Laurent Cincinnati, recently left his job at Apple uh, after seven years there to start his own startup to do this thing. And uh, what the, uh, Ryan Paul said in the article is that he said his desire to continue working on MacRuby. There you go, his. I could have just looked at it in the article. His desire to continue working on MacRuby was one of the factors that motivated him to leave Apple and launch his own company. Mm. So that's pretty conclusive saying that he wanted to do Ruby. He thought you could develop applications with Ruby for iOS and Mac OS X. And Apple disagreed, so he left the company. This is very similar to the guy who was running, uh, what is it called, 10s complement for the, for the ZFS port to Mac OS X. He was working on that internally. Apple said, no, we're not going to do ZFS for, for Mac OS X. So he left and started his own company to do ZFS for Mac OS X. So here's another example of the same thing. But I think this is pretty much as confirmed as you can get that MacRuby is not going to be the future of the development platform for Apple, at least as far as Apple is concerned right now because he had to leave the company to pursue what he wanted to do. Uh, now, a lot, uh, lots of people have been asking me, you know, isn't this much better than what you talked about on those bridge episodes? Well, if you listen to all those episodes where I talked about the future of their platform and bridges and stuff, I don't see how the announcement of RubyMotion changes anything that I said, because it's basically, I don't know if it's exactly the MacRuby code, but it's just, it's very, it's it's Mac Ruby with a nice IDE and, and stuff like that. And I don't think it changes any of the fundamental things that I talked about then, other than, you know, being a more nicely packaged implementation and commercially supported and all that other stuff. So just I'll go over a few of them briefly and you can go back and listen to those shows to hear the long drawn out version. But I still think you don't get all the benefits of your fancy new high-level language if you're using it to call into an API designed for a lower-level language. Uh, and I went into more detail about it in the shows. But And, and to be fair to MacRuby, it is the best I've seen in terms of, okay, so use your, your cool high-level language to call into Objective-C APIs. I mean, it does, does the native bridging of types like, you know, your Ruby strings or NS strings and Ruby classes or, or your Ruby objects or NS objects and it bridges NS array and NS dictionary and all that stuff to the native Ruby types. Like, it's the best, that's the best you can hope for. Uh, and the IDE has some cool demos of showing like, hey, since this is Ruby, uh, you can, when you start your app in the debugger or whatever, you can get a REPL where you can just do real-time changes to your application. Like you can put a breakpoint, stop, and then inspect some properties and fiddle them in your running application. Now, you can do that in the, the fancier versions of GDB and LLDB, but it's considerably easier to do that in a high-level language REPL. And by the way, the RS Technica article used the word, used the abbreviation REPL, capital R-E-P-L, without linking it anywhere, without explaining it, which is pretty brave. If I had written that article, I would have linked it somewhere. So for people who don't know what a REPL is, it's linked in the show notes. It's read, eval, print loop. It's basically... You get an interactive prompt in your program where you can manipulate any data in the current, you know, where you are on the current stack frame or whatever on the particular line of code, and you can fiddle with data, inspect it, modify it, and then continue your program. Uh, It's interactive debugging. People who are used to high-level languages like JavaScript or Python or Perl or Ruby are used to this. This is just the way we do development. You set your breakpoint, you get up to that point, and you see what the heck is going on. What's going to happen? Inspect your data, maybe change it, see if you can continue. You know, it's it's a, a nicer way to debug than if you have a compiled language and you're not familiar enough with the debugger to be able to do the same things. Uh, most Again, most low-level languages do have some sort of modifying continue debugger, but it's not kind of, it's not something that everybody who uses those type of languages uses, whereas in the higher-level languages it's just taken for granted that it's something that you have. Uh, so I think MacRuby is great there. But regardless of you know the, the regardless of the level of your language even ignoring like high level versus low level using one language to call into an api written in another language adds all sorts of weirdness like and then the example they give in the articles that the calling convention is just different it's not because one's high level and low level but it's just they just different in this regard it's nice that ruby and objective c are similar in so many ways which is what makes the bridging better than other kinds of bridges like for example from like java objective c bridge was worse because java was more different than than ruby is and stuff but just having two different languages, even if they're exactly the same level, when the calling conventions are different, it makes things weird. So Objective-C has like the function signatures where it's like set the thing colon with the thing colon and the thing colon. And that's the whole signature. But you you put the arguments interspersed in the middle of those. It looks like name parameters, but it's really not. It's really just a, a fancy way of calling something. So in, in Ruby, you got to do like object dot set the thing with and then the thing comma the other thing colon. And then the other thing, value. It's kind of like weird and awkward. because It's just, you know, it looks strange. And you can't even do like the same string searches because the method signatures include like the first argument in them. And you have to make some sort of decision about, all right, how do I translate from the square bracket expression of an Objective-C message send into my object dot something parens version in Ruby? And so they just choose a way to do it, but it just ends up being weird. Uh, And so you're using... uh, you know getting back to the high level versus low level thing you're presumably you're using ruby because you like it better than objective c you know like it's it's those people who love ruby it's like oh beautiful and elegant and uh well it is succinct yeah 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 uh, and but like that's why you're using it but then here are all these ugly warts like you would never write a ruby api to look like the things that you have to call because they're objective c apis it, the beauty is partially lost because most of what your program is doing is calling through to an API written in another language that you must call in your Ruby code and it just looks weird. You just know it's not a, a native Ruby API because no sane Ruby person would ever make an API that looks anything like this. It's just weird. Uh, and the, the final point that I made in all those episodes is that the hard part of making an iOS app or a Mac app using Cocoa or whatever is learning the API, is learning UIKit and kit and Foundation and all these things. That's the hard part. The hard part is not the language. And once you know the API, once you know enough to make uh, an iOS application or a Cocoa application or something, at that point, it's like, why not just use Objective-C? Like, how much of your program, how much of what you're doing in your program is someplace where you're like, okay, now this is just a block of plain old Ruby, and I'm just going to do some simple string manipulation that's so much easier to do in Ruby. And that's, I think that's true. It is probably easier to do simple string manipulation and stuff like that in Ruby than it is in Objective-C the vast majority of the time in your program, you're calling into APIs that you didn't write. And the hard part is figuring out which one of those to call and how to call them in what sequence and how to arrange your program. And that doesn't change with the language. And so like, you're so close to just writing a native Objective-C that it's like, you know, there's the confusion of having to go through the bridge layer and everything balanced with the supposed benefits you're getting. But once you learn that API, I know if I would did this and did like a, a, a Mac Ruby application and I got it working and everything, I'd be like, man, now I enough about, know enough about a UI kit that I could just write this in Objective-C and not have this intermediary layer that I have to worry about, right? Uh, and the other thing, of course, is that Objective-C is Apple-supported platform, that they keep improving it, that you can use a full Apple toolchain. One of the points that Ryan Paul makes in the article is that RubyMotion does not use what used to be known as Interface Builder and is now integrated into Xcode. Right. Uh, you can't lay out your UIs using a GUI. you got to use it programmatically, which is something that not everyone is familiar with. It certainly has a higher learning curve. You have to learn all the APIs of how to lay stuff out. And if you're visually oriented, it's not quite as nice. And
0: there's a lot of design shops, app, app design shops, where the person doing the user interface has no connection to the code. They're simply designed. I, I know there are a lot of people that work in this way. Maybe it's a team of two people. One writes code, one does the user interface usability part, and that that should bother people.
1: Yeah, and like they, they're trying to help. Like Sansonite says that they have their own layout system that they've developed. Uh, they said Xcode integration is on the roadmap, but not the short-term roadmap, so that's out there. And their their own thing is sort of like, works, he says, kind of like CSS. Uh, and it's similar to the Cocoa Auto layout, which uses little ASCII art diagrams, except it's something that's done in Ruby with a DSL type thing. So it's more Ruby flavored. But it, it, it's a way to programmatically lay out controls that's nicer than just having to make a bunch of calls, giving some sort of webby, visual DSL y kind of uh, way to do stuff. But I still think people like. You know, like again, like you said, if there's if there's designers doing it or something, you're not going to. Hey, check out this cool DSL or check out Auto Layout with ASCII art. They're just going to roll their eyes. They they want to drag buttons onto a form and connect them up with lines and do all that stuff. Uh, let's see what else do we have on this. What else you got? Uh, no, we're not done with this topic. because It just continues on and on. <laughs> uh, so the thing about being on the apple train and using apple's toolchain. It's worth noting at this point that not using apple's toolchain can be seen as a benefit to many people because the latest version of xcode has a lot of detractors both in terms of its user interface but primarily in terms of its bugginess and performance. So this is coming at just the right time, I think, of people who are just annoyed at the latest version of Xcode because it, it's slow and it keeps crashing and screws up their projects and stuff like that. And Like, man, they just want to get out of that. It's like, I want to build my application. But I want to get out of that. Unfortunately, those people who are complaining are usually pretty hardcore iOS or Mac developers who have a tremendous amount of knowledge invested in Objective-C and that platform. And I don't think they can just slide right into Ruby Cocoa, but or not Ruby Cocoa, Mac Ruby or Ruby Motion. Uh, so maybe they'll give it a try and play with it, and maybe it will get some traction. If ever there was a time for it to land and have the best chance of getting traction, I think it's now with the dissatisfaction of, of Apple's t- with Apple's tools. I think Apple will eventually get its tools settled down. The, the latest version of Xcode is a quite a change from the previous one, and it's been rocky for a while, but presumably, like you, you would assume they would eventually get it settled down. A lot of people are like, all right, let's just consider Xcode for a bad joke and WWC they're going to have Xcode 5 and it will actually work so there's lots of fantasies going on in that regard but the latest version of Xcode 4 is not well loved uh, so we'll see how they do but the final point I have to make on this is that Apple really really hates it when people don't use its tools like that's, that's the elephant in the room about all this they really hate it they do not want you developing applications for that platform using any tools other than their own they seriously <laughs> hate it like the Flash stuff making you know making applications with flash and porting them and you know, like all those di- er, debates they just no. if you want to make applications for our platform use our tools to do it and then people came around all these workarounds all right, we'll use a different tool but we'll produce objective c code and you won't be able to tell the difference apple and so far apple's been like all right well fine i mean it's Objective c code and you're submitting us a binary that looks like it was built with our tools and it looks like it was written in objective c and we didn't know that it was and like that's a, a constant struggle, but you just know Apple doesn't like that because that what they don't want is a code warrior situation where the vast majority of their uh, user base is using an ID that they don't control. And all of a sudden, the progress of their platform is controlled by a, a third party company that they have no control over. Right. Because like we made this awesome new thing and like, oh, well, I can't even use that until code warrior updates to support it. Right. They do not want that to happen ever, ever again. And it's just like an institutional hatred of using any tools other than their own, they want complete ownership of the tools. They want you to use them, and if they can force you to use them, they will. So that is the grim outlook for anybody trying to make any sort of tool that you use instead of Xcode to, to make your applications. Even if you use their full compiler tool chain, you know they're using LVM and and Clang and all that. Like that's that's what RubyMotion is using. It's totally native. It's, make, it's making Objective C applications. Like you don't have to know that it was written in in uh, Coke and uh, Ruby. But I, I just know that Apple does not like that. So. If one of these IDEs ever got traction and became insanely popular, look for a confrontation of some kind or something coming to a head. The best thing that could happen to RubyMotion is that it could be used by a few really great developers and get popular enough to be self-supporting but still not be in widespread use because that would keep it safe, sort of. Uh, One other point I had in this, I have too many things bolded here, was that I think... Cincinnati's heart is in the right place with this thing. A quote from the the Ars Technic article has some quotes from him right in it. It says, an iOS application written in Ruby will contain significantly less lines of code than a comparable app written in Objective-C. Like, that's what you want, right? That's... Always the goals. You don't want to just like, oh, well, it looks prettier because there's no funny square brackets. Like, that's not the goal. Like, that's maybe one of the goals, but that's not what... You want it to be less code. That's what you want. And I think this delivers on that. Just if only getting rid of like... Uh, declaration boilerplate and headers and the, the example code in the in the article is only 100 lines and it's only 100 lines because you can put it all in one file you just do multiple class definitions and you don't have to have like separate .m's and .h's and interface and property declarations and synthesize calls and it's just you know it's less noisy and there's less boilerplate and so there is a real benefit there i think but it's obviously not what apple wants to go with and If I was writing an application for the Mac or iOS, I would probably just bite the bullet and learn learn Objective-C because that feels like still the the safest bet to me.
0: That's been the 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 advice I've always heard from every developer that I've ever talked to is, you know, bite the bullet, learn Objective-C, it's got the best support, it's from Apple, it's by Apple, they're always going to make sure that this works unless they invent something new, but this is official why, if you're going to embrace the platform, would you not embrace the infrastructure that, that they've provided for you?
1: Well, the why is because the infrastructure sucks and keeps crashing and annoys me. And <laughs> I don't like the language as much as the other stuff. But but again, I, I truly think that the hardest thing about writing these applications <laughs> is that you have to learn the API. It's not learning the language. Objective-C takes, you know, an experienced programmer a day to, to get the basics. You know, you're you're fine, right? It's not the language, it's the API. And the API is... A lot to learn, no matter what language you program it in. So that that's always been the sticking point to me. So that, that's the end of Ruby RubyMotion. I, I, I applaud the effort. I think it looks really cool. And I hope they do not get big enough to go into Apple's crosshairs. That was like a follow-up, but also kind of a topic because it's so distant. But now back to the regular follow-up. I really wanted to limit this to two shows, but due to my own incompetence, I have failed to do so. Games, games and gaming. <laughs> well, this is a big, this is a
0: big follow-up topic. Let's do our second sponsor quickly and then we can get into games. Okay. Are you? Will, will you allow it? I will. Textastic. This is something I would think you like. Now, do, do you have an iPad that you could use? Do you have an iPad you could grab and have for the afternoon?
1: It's sitting right in front of me right now. Okay.
0: okay. So I want you to go and install, and I think I have a promo code for you if you want, if you don't already have this app. Textastic. It's a powerful and fast text editor for iPad. I love this app. It's an advanced code editor, it has uh, rich support for syntax highlighting, it does Dropbox integration, it does WebDAV, it does uh, FTP and SFTP, and it supports more than 80 different types of files while you're typing. HTML, Objective-C, Ruby, uh, Python, and if you don't, if if you, like John Syracuse, have invented your own superior programming language, you can use your own TextMate-compatible syntax definitions. Just use your own thing. It's written from the ground up. It uses uh, you know native iOS APIs like Core Text, uh, so it has interactive search. It has a very fast, quick, very responsive text editor that that this whole thing is built around. It's got these great little additional keys over the virtual keyboard that make it really easy for you to enter code. And it has an awesome little uh, cursor navigation wheel that makes selecting text really easy. So first, you use our first sponsor to, to get up to speed, so you can type really fast. Then you get this, and now you're like a coding machine with just your iPad. You're a coding machine, and you can update right on the server. You have got SFTP. I mentioned that. You got Dropbox. You got all of this stuff. And it even has code completion for HTML and CSS. And if you have an external keyboard, you can use that too. It's really awesome you go to textasticapp.com. Let me spell that. Text, T E X T ASTIC A S T I C app. Textasticapp.com. And uh, if there's developers out there, and even if you're not a developer, you just want a really, really great editor with all these features, just go check it out, Textastic.
1: Did you see that thing recently about some, uh, a guy or a group of people Created an entire game on an iPad. It was an iOS game, and they created it entirely on the iPad. All the coding, all the graphics, all everything. Pretty cool. Shows what you can do. Yeah, and so I, what I think when I thought of when I saw that was like they're like, hey, look at this. We made we made a whole app on the iPad. See, it's not just for consumption. Blah blah. blah. It reminded me of kind of like uh, if someone had been bragging back in the early days of the personal computer or or game consoles where you used to need to have another bigger, fancier computer <laughs> right. to make programs for the other computer. Yeah. Like you, you I, I can't think of a good concrete example and sort of someone can come up with one, but like you used, you know, with game consoles. You'd have to use a, a development thing that was way more powerful than the game console itself to write it. Like you don't write the game on the game console. And even for personal computers, like a lot of the original Mac software was uh, written on Elisa. I believe someone can correct me if I'm wrong on that because you needed the big computer or at least the computer was already done to make the, make software for the other computer. Uh, but now that seems silly. It's like, I, I I wrote this Mac application on my Mac. Isn't that amazing? And we're like, well, <laughs> no, not really. Uh, I think in 10 years, looking back in the story, it's like someone wrote an iPad application on an iPad. They'd be like, so? So what? <laughs> that's, that's exciting for what reason? Uh, we're in this weird in-between <laughs> period where we think you can't do... We think you can't create things for the thing on the thing. All right. Gaming, gaming, gaming. So... Again, listening to myself on the previous episode, I, I immediately struck with the points that I totally missed. I'm listening to myself and going, wait, you now don't talk about that. Now you're missing the point here. Don't you see and yeah, you know, and again, I'm it it's frustrating to listen to yourself and realize you're being an idiot. Uh, but there you have it. So I'll start with some smaller gaming follow-up and then we'll get to the the one major point that I missed. If you recall, uh last show I repented for not having focused enough on the distinction I was making that games are a weird kind of art because they have these qualities that other forms of art don't. I, I th- thought that on the original show, I had muddied the waters by, bringing, by talking about things that are not arts to try to illuminate other aspects of the analogy. But it was a it was a tangent that was dragging me off course. And so um, this episode, I have a, a point that I missed last time. But let's start with small follow-up. First, I have something from... <sighs> Someone who's, I, I hate it when I go to someone's Twitter account and all I see is their Twitter name and they don't have a real name listed because I don't know how to credit you. So this one is S-T-I-C-K-A-N, which I don't know how to pronounce. And if you had provided a real name, I would have given an effort. But uh, he sent me a link to, oh, here's another name, Dara O'Brien, but it's, it's not O'Brien like O apostrophe. It's Dara, D-A-R-A, and then a space, and then a capital O, and then a space, and then B-R-I-A-I-N. Anyway. He's Irish, I think. Yeah, that's uh, an Irish name for sure. Yes, but no posture. So he's a stand-up comedian. and He has a, stan- he has a stand-up comedy skit about uh, the difficulty of playing games. Very similar to the topic like, you know, he, he makes one line. It's not the point of his comedy routine, but one line is about, it. you know, other forms of art you aren't prevented from enjoying because you are uh, not skilled enough. Uh, and it's a good, funny routine, and you should watch it. Uh, the link is in the show notes. Uh, so I recommend that. KJ Healing chat Room says, O'Brien. Oh, O'Brien, oh, well, he would know. So there you go. Uh, and what it reminded me of, uh, seeing the, the stand-up comic talking about video games, was that at PAX this year, someone in the audience asked a question during one of the Q&A sessions of Mike and Jerry. Uh, why don't you guys have stand-up comedians at PAX? And what they said was that it's not... A lot of people have proposed that, but it's not easy to find stand-up comedians who do, like, video game-relevant humor who aren't, like, patronizing or, like, not really one of us or or just aren't funny, you know what I mean? Like, you can't just say, oh, hey, I'm a stand-up comedian. I do video game stuff, and you can you can tell when the person doing the comedy either doesn't get the culture or isn't a real gamer mm. and the people who, who do get the culture and are real gamers are often are not funny so it's not easy it's not easy to find a stand-up comedian who's going to do it because there, it is possible to have very funny skits about video games that are relevant to gamers but it's rare so i looked at this guy and i'm like he seems like a real gamer to me maybe kind of like a in-betweeny casually kind of you know like but And the question is like whether he's funny or not. Maybe they can't get him. Maybe he's too big and and wherever he's from. uh, And maybe they just don't feel like he's a good fit for the show. And I don't know if he is, but when I saw this, I thought of that. Like it is difficult to find people doing humor about narrow interest subjects that are acceptable to the people who are into that, but who are also broadly funny. Uh, The next one is from Ash Furrow. And he, uh, I'm assuming it's a he again. Like many other people, are following my advice. And when they have a whole bunch of stuff, To say about some show, write a blog post. I will link to it in the show notes. It's better than sending me the big giant email that only I see and then I have to summarize for everybody else, right? Okay, J. Healy says, Darrow was a physics major in college and he's a big science nerd. Yes, but it doesn't mean he's a gamer. It doesn't mean he has more connection to the nerds. So anyway, Ash Furrow wrote a blog post that that was titled, The Joys and Sorrows of Being an Almost Gamer. Uh, And that's in the show notes. And he complains about, he says that that he really understood what I was talking about when I said that some people play games and don't have the skills to complete them. It can be frustrating, like games such as Zelda to have a soft ramp up uh, to get you familiar with mechanics. But then eventually the game gets too hard and you have to stop. Uh, And he said he has experienced this and it kind of sucks. And it's why he stopped playing video games. He says, uh, he says, I've played two thirds of the way through so many games. I've almost finished a dozen Zelda games. That's rough, right? Uh, he says that he was getting at the Portal, which is a first-person shooter. He says, when I came to the section that introduces turrets, I literally panicked. I put down the game and didn't touch it for a month because suddenly it had become a first-person shooter. And I hated it because he's not particularly good at first-person shooters and doesn't like those kind of games. But was encouraged to play Portal because he said it was like a puzzle game. But eventually there's some stuff in port- first-person kind of stuff in Portal where you have to be kind of good at controlling the character. And that makes it frustrating. Uh, So he says he has played a whole bunch of games like Mario games and smash brothers and joy portal and portal two, but never enjoyed playing Halo or call of duty. And he says that he thinks marginal improvements in gamer skill, at the high level of the spectrum can result in massive improvements in the joy experience while playing. So if he was a little better at shooters, he'd enjoy them more. I would say about this person that he's mostly a gamer. Like he's not really the people I was talking about. The fact that he's gotten as far as he has shows that he has much more competence in gaming than the vast majority of the public. Uh, I think he could play, enjoy, and get through completely like a, a game like Eco and, and Journey very easily. Shadow of the Colossus probably still beyond his reach uh, because they does get hard towards the end. And not finishing Zelda games is really rough because, like, especially if you get like two-thirds of the way through, you want to see the ending. You want to see the conclusion of the story. You want to have satisfaction for the work you've done. And if you just can't get there, that's, that's rough. Uh, so I encourage everyone to go read that. Uh, because it is much more interesting than my brief summary of it. And speaking of finishing games, Bruce Phillips wrote in to point me to an article that shows completion percentages for a bunch of Xbox 360 games. It's a little bit old, uh, but on on the past show I said I would love to know how many players actually complete games. And this isn't necessarily a measure of, of skill because they could you could not complete a game because it gets boring or it gets annoying or you just don't it's not fun anymore or you think you've played the whole game and you're not interested anymore. Uh, but the range is huge. So uh, this is a link in the show notes. That it's a, a Game of Suture article or Gamma Sutra, if you want to pronounce it that way. Uh, and there's like a low of a 10% completion rate for a Guitar Hero game, which I assume is completely a, a skill barrier to completion because completing 100% of a Guitar Hero takes tremendous dexterity and musical ability that most people don't have. And it'll, I think it also gets kind of boring as you go. Uh, and to a high of 75% for a Call of Duty game, which is a mass market game. Uh, like I said, they, they want to reduce the skill factor to get, get find the broadest audience. But uh, Call of Duty is, is still a pretty hardcore gamer game. But there's a huge range there in completion percentages. Uh, and I was... I wish I had more relevant, more comprehensive data on that. And I bet game makers do too. That's the point of the article. It was like, uh, how to get people to keep playing your game. I don't know if the article... Uh, I just looked at the graphs. I confess I did not read the entire thing. But I don't know if the article goes into... Uh, whether skill is a factor, like are people leaving your game because they're not engaged, or do they consider that people are leaving your game simply because they can't get any farther? Oh, the next one is Mike F, who writes in without his full last name. Uh, Mike F mentions that the like end Axel of Axel F, exactly. Eddie Murphy writes in to say that he <laughs> he doesn't like Journey. So right away he's suspect to me. Like this was the end of his <laughs> thing. I read his entire entire email, and then at the very end he takes a jab at Journey. I'm like, oh, then why did I read that whole mail? i I just written you off entirely. So he, he's suspect, but uh, well, let's hear him out. Let's see what he has to say. Let's try to consider his arguments without considering his terrible taste in games. Uh, Let's see, he says, it's pretty common to hear video game journalists making the same argument you did about video game length and how meaningless it is as a measure of value. Take Taken to the extreme, that's obviously a bad argument. A copy of Quake 3 that shuts off after a week is worth less than one that does not. And he suggests that it's because uh, if you're an adult with a job and you have less time, obviously you're going to be, if you're time constrained, you value the quality of the entertainment more than the uh, the length of it. But if you're money constrained like a kid... You want to get the most bang for your buck. You've got plenty of time, but you only have a little bit of money. So you don't want to spend 60 bucks on a game that's that's only like five hours long because now you've got to save up 60 bucks again. Uh, so it's it's you know a, di- a difference in perspective of what you want out of those things. So he says, uh, if you're a kid on a budget and you can only get a game every two months, would you really recommend the kid buy Journey? Well, first of all, Journey is $15, so that's not quite a, a fair comparison, uh, but... What I was specifically talking about in complaints about how long it takes to finish game is that it applies mostly to single player games. Like when, some, when someone review a single player game and said it was only nine hours of gameplay and I think there should be 20. Right. Uh, and the, they didn't get X hours enjoyment for Y amount of money complaints almost exclusively focus on single player games. Uh, a replay value in dollar for money is like a legitimate concern but it's mostly wrapped up in, in game type. Very, very few single player games have enough replay value to come close to even a mediocre multiplayer game. Uh, so a game like Quake 3, yes, it would be ridiculous if the game shut off. But you, by reading your review, you know what genre you're getting into. Very few people are complaining that MMOs don't have enough, like they're not long enough. Like there are very few MMOs where you can hit the level cap in five hours because that that i think would be worth complaining about you when you get an mmo and especially when you get a multiplayer game a multiplayer game is like you can just play that forever and ever like it never people are still playing quake 3 that game never ends you know single-player games have an end i mean to, to give a x hours of gameplay thing you have to have an end to the game and single-player games do have an end and there are single-player portions of other games that you can complain about but multiplayer games pretty much don't have an end even when you hit the level cap you can just hang out there in an mmo and you're not going to get like a level 80 or whatever that is wow person in 12 hours. You're just not. I don't know what the fastest speed run up to level 80 was, but it takes normal people a really long time to do that. And even when you hit the level cap, you could just keep playing and playing and playing and doing raids and just, you know, there's no end to them. So I've never personally seen a length complaint for... A an MMO or a multiplayer game. I only see it for single-player games where you play through some sort of story. And occasionally you see complaints about the story mode of a multiplayer game. Like, oh, yeah, it's got it's awesome multiplayer and stuff, but the single-player campaign is only four hours long, and we don't feel like that's enough. And those are the complaints that, I, that I'm saying are silly because, you know, if, if the quality of those four hours of single-player game was high enough, it shouldn't matter. And, by the way, if it's part of a multiplayer game, is that really even the focus? Aren't you buying this game so you can, you know... Uh, play multiplayer forever and ever and ever until you get bored of it. Uh, so for people who are on time constraints, who, who are on money constraints, yeah, I would definitely tell a kid who's on money constraint to buy Journey because it is only $15. So it's not going to hurt their money budget. Uh, but even if it was $60, I would still tell... I was tell anybody. I recommend that game to anybody. If, if you like good things, then you should like Journey. And I think if you divide the enjoyment and quality... Uh, you know, r- amount that you get by the time money ratio, you will g- still get a higher value than you would for even for many multiplayer games. Uh, so, uh, but really, what I'm getting is I don't think people are being tricked or duped or gypped by, oh, let's see, it's, that's not good. That's rude for gypsies. I'm very sorry. Many things that come out of my mouth are unintentionally racist. Uh, there's a show title for you. <laughs> <laughs> people who feel like they're being uh, swindled by not getting what they wanted for their money. If you're a gamer, you know what you're getting when you buy an MMO. You know what you're getting when you buy a multiplayer game. Are you, gonna, are you buying this game so you can play Deathmatch? So you can play a sports game against people online? You know how much content you're getting. And for a single-player game, I still say it comes down to quality and not length. I would much rather play, and even if it was totally not time-constrained, I'm retired, I have no kids, I have all the time in the world, I would still rather play an awesome two-hour game than a mediocre or crappy 10, 15, 20-hour game. And of course, the if you really want value for the money, What you're really looking for if you're not into multiplayer games is a 70 to 80 hour single player game where it's good all the way through. And those are few and far between Zelda games are the only ones that come to mind. And so what did he say about Journey? He says it's a pretentious pile of overproduced ham-fisted twaddle. That's what he said about Journey. Hmm. So pretentious? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe that's the only one I'll possibly give him. Or maybe he's just too cynical. But it's a strong argument for, the, for Journey being pretentious, right? But overproduced? No, no, no. It's very understated. And it's not overproduced. Call of Duty is overproduced. You know, Journey is not overproduced. And ham-fisted? Not ham-fisted at all. Very <laughs> subtle. Very, you know, ham-fisted is the square-jawed, jarhead marine guy cursing at you about how he's going to crush the enemy bugs. And, like, that's, that's ham-fisted. Journey has... Cutscenes scenes with no text and no dialogue. That is not, yeah. Anyway, he's wrong about Journey. I am right. You should go buy that game. It's $15. The show is brought to you by Journey. <laughs> <laughs> right. Can you believe they don't sponsor the show? I so can't. Me. I can't believe it. Well, you know, they are losing money, so maybe they don't have well,
0: enough but, but see, they're losing money because they're not sponsoring the show. That's how That's this fine. works.
1: Finally, you got to let Horace know that you've cracked it. Sony, what's wrong with Sony? Not fa- sponsoring 5 by 5 caused the downfall well, of the company. It didn't either. cause
0: it, but it simply didn't, it didn't suspend it either.
1: You heard it here first. Yeah. All right. Uh, there was, I had a Twitter exchange shortly after the last show about gaming with someone whose Twitter handle is Frankly and whose name is listed only as Frank. Uh, (laughs) the original tweet that started it was saying to me, you're still making an incorrect assumption that time investment can't improve skills. I suggest reading Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, which I'm sure Merlin is glad to hear another person recommending a Malcolm Gladwell book. Uh, And so the gist of this Twitter thread, which I tried desperately to find a service that can link, there's a million like show a Twitter thread websites out there. uh, And I found a whole bunch of them, but none of them showed the complete thread, probably because we like, we must've like had a dis, uh, a discontinuity in there where we started replying to different threads. So no, none of them showed the entire thread and all of them are like ugly and weird. So please don't send me 8,000 Twitter thread things. If you found one that you like, uh, then go for it. But you can just look through, I'll put this frankly tweet in the original tweet in the show notes and you can find the chain of replies that lasted like 10 and 15 minutes. Uh, and this was an example of a good Twitter exchange. I think it probably would have been better if it had gone to email, but I think it was more entertaining to other people if they wanted to follow in that it was going on Twitter and it kept us short. So I'm going to summarize the beginning portion of it in even shorter version. Frank was basically saying time investment leads to skill, and I was saying that there's a limit, and that was the major the major point of our disagreement was that you know he was saying like you know the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours to gain expertise blah blah blah. Uh, I was obviously never not saying that you don't get better when you practice obviously you do but i was saying that there are limits and that those limits are really low for most people when it comes to gaming because they're not skills that most people have and can't develop uh so that was our our disagreement that he he seemed to think that if you practice enough anybody can get really good at games and i think that is not the case but regardless of that disagreement like even ignore who was right in that debate the meta point i made after i realized that was our disagreement was like it's moot because if people won't invest the time to practice, it still results in the same thing. The majority of the population not having the skills to uh, enjoy games. And is it because they can't get the skills or because they're not engaged enough or because they're put off by their, their lack of expertise in to begin with, or because they don't know what the, whatever the reason they either can't gain them or won't gain them. But the end result is the same. Most of the population can't appreciate these, what, what we think are the best that this medium has to offer. Uh, America again on Twitter pointed out that opera is kind of like that. Uh, and because, you know, if you're, if you don't have, if you don't understand what they're saying, you don't know the foreign language and that, then you can't really appreciate opera. And, I think that probably applies to all foreign language art. Not that it's the art form itself, but it's the fact that it's in a foreign language. Uh, you know, Foreign movies have subtitles, but you're kind of missing some of the cultural stuff. But really, any any art created in a foreign society in a different language or in a different culture than you are, there is necessarily a, a knowledge barrier to you fully appreciate. Not so much a skill barrier uh, in terms of physical skill, but there's definitely a barrier there. And that, that I think, is the closest I've seen uh, as an, uh, a commonplace example of art being not able to be appreciated by people because of something close to a skill or knowledge that they don't have. So, and I would just lump all foreign stuff under that. But finally, we'll get to the main point that upon listening to myself, I immediately realized, and then 8 billion people (laughs) emailed me and tweeted me about uh, this distinction that I guess I was kind of making implicitly, but it doesn't matter if I make it implicitly, if I don't actually say it, because this is an audio medium, Uh, the distinction not, not versus art and not art, but participant versus observer, producer versus consumer. Many people wrote in to give examples of other types of things they thought were either counterexamples or support for my statements about games. And a lot of them made the same, same mistake I did of not distinguishing correctly between the person creating the art and the person consuming the art. And I thought that was key to what I was talking about. And here is a blog post by Jonathan Dugek, D-U-G-E-C, which says everything that I'm about to say, but in a much better manner. So I will put it in the show notes and you can read it. Uh, Let's see if I've got a portion that I can read here. (sighs) So the type of gaming that enthusiasts engage in is, as opposed to casual games, is interesting in that it is a participatory pastime. There is perhaps no division between participants, those who play, and consumers, those who consume. Because necessarily consumption is participation in this instance. It, it is the ability to participate, the necessary physical skills to fully enjoy journey that are the barriers to entry here. This is a fairly unique proposition for a pastime, particularly one as creative as video games. It may have the effect of ensuring that gaming is never legitimized by the cultural establishment as more than a simply frivolous pastime. This is disappointing for fans of creative video games. So this, this distinction, many people will bring up things like music. or like, oh, you need physical skills to to play music and music is an art and therefore it's exactly the same thing. The big distinction here is that playing music and composing music is difficult. Creating art is almost always difficult. The creation process, of course, is difficult. The the weird thing about gaming is that consumption is difficult. So it's super hard to write a symphony or to play an instrument masterfully, right? But to listen to that music, you sit in the room with your ears open and you listen. And and almost everyone can appreciate music. Babies, little babies, and toddlers sway their little bodies to the music. It's like (laughs) Not, you know, it's it's as innate as you can get, appreciating music. So yes, of course, creating music is difficult. Creating games is difficult, creating photography, writing everything. The creation act is always hard. Uh, but gaming is weird because to consume it, you're also partially participating. And that's the one of the, you know, the, that distinguishes games from these other media that people think are analogous because you are not creating music by listening to it. You are not creating a movie by watching it. Right. You are not creating a novel by reading it. And the participation required of you, there's a low skill barrier. Uh, listening to music and enjoying it, that's not, you know, that's practically something that's innate, almost as close as you can get, right? Watching a movie, it helps to have that cultural background, the knowledge and everything, but there's no skill factor really in terms of watching better. And I did make this point in the very first episode about this. And music is the same way. Uh, so Jonathan goes on to say, there are no simple consumers of creative video games. What is unusual about video games is the drive from the audience uh, and the industry to legit- for legitimization as an art form. Tennis had never attempted to legitimize itself as high art, and is perceived as it is. A participant in that sport ac- attracted consumers in the form of the audience. Video games seem to be relatively unique in that they are participatory activities seeking to be legitimized as an art form. So, I'm going to talk more about legitimization in art forms a little bit later, but uh, this distinction between producer and consumer, participant uh, and creator is, I think, key to understanding what's going on here because there are no simple consumers of video games. You must participate in the and that's what I was trying to get at last time with like the two way communication between the original creator of the game and the player. They are communicating over time to help create this thing and it's not completely performance art and the player isn't creating the game the game was created for him but there's a necessary participation participation element that requires skill and yes knowledge and experience like many other things uh to do that that it's like a barrier to consumption there and adam drew had another uh email instead of a blog post about the same thing classic gaming is not a form of art consumption it is a form of art performance uh, the player does not consume the art of the game he or she performs it And again i think there's there's a lot a humongous component of that that's done by the creator you're not really performing it the same way as you were i think it's even different like saying oh the composer writes the symphony and then the musician performs it and then the people listen well it's still different than that because the composer in that analogy is the person who created the game but the player doesn't just perform the game like you're not following a series of instructions and doing what the composer said and yes there's plenty of room for variation and, and playing style and stuff like that but the variation in gameplay you can do things that the original creator of the game didn't intend at all like that's the the beauty of gaming that you are it's not a direct type of thing where i make the game you play the game you do exactly what i wanted uh with variations in style or whatever you want it's not what it's like it's much more uh, much more variation between the you know the the game that was created and the way the player experiences it. Uh, And also, the person who's playing the game, who's consuming, he's also the consumer. You can say, well, what if someone's watching him? Isn't that like the music listener? Well, it's like someone writes a symphony, someone plays it, and some dude listens to the symphony. In gaming, the person listening and the person playing are the same. And again, I don't think the person playing is simply carrying out the instructions of the game creator. Far from it. That's not what gaming is like. That's not what gaming is about. And and the more games get towards that, the more people tend not to like them. Uh, As being just like, oh, I'm just basically pressing a bunch of buttons to make a movie play in front of me uh, uh, using computer graphics characters instead of, uh, you know, pre-rendered things. That's not what gaming is about. Uh, let's see what I got here. So he, he makes another good analogy here. The reason I included it is that he says the emergence of recording artists and their much wider marketability was a double-edged sword for music. It was great that music got a larger exposure and that people could make a boatload of money for music, but it also replaced learning, playing and performing music as, as a, pr- a pri- previously primary vehicles for music appreciation. So he's making the comparison between like, you know, back before we had record players and radio and stuff like that, the way people experienced music was they had to learn how to play it. Uh, but I think music, music had a barrier to distribution, which led to people having to learn how to play. Because if you couldn't, where could you get music? There was no radio. There was no record store. If you wanted to have music, someone in your village or whatever had to know how to play. Right. Uh, and again, definite skill barrier to production. If you wanted to have music in your home, someone in your family has got to learn how to play. So there's a huge skill barrier to doing that, like all art forms. But the consumers still had no skill barrier. You go down to the pub and you listen you didn't have to know how to play. If your dad knew how to play the fiddle, you sit there and you listen, right? No skill barrier to consumption and a clear, pretty clear separation between consumption and creation and the idea of performance. Uh, that's kind of what they were getting at in in the art thing is like performance. I don't think it's the same as performing a play or performing a piece of music. I think it's much, uh, there's much greater variation in that. And the creative act is not the same as writing a book, writing a play or composing a song, but And I also think the consumer is also the person doing the performance. So it is weird in many different ways. But this this distinction is uh, important between producer, consumer, performer, and how those blend and combine and who takes what roles in the creative process. Let's see. More on participation, casual games. Uh, I'll read this part here. This is the last part from Drew. Uh, In my view, the emergence of modern casual games is directly analogous to the emergence of recording artists in the early to mid-20th century. As the art form has matured and the devices that can play them have become more ubiquitous, the audience of people who appreciate facets of gaming, such as the fun graphics, sense of reward, bragging rights, and things of that nature has increased. However, the pool of people, people with skill to play games has not. Uh, so he's comparing casual games to like, well, casual games are equivalent to the people who just listen to pre-recorded music, whereas the hardcore gamers are the people who would learn how to play. I think this is, again, I think this is an imperfect analogy, uh, but it's interesting in that it, it does echo the marginalization of the people who are uh, of the people with skills in favor of the people with lesser skills. It doesn't it, like the, the broadening the base of music, making more people be able to get at music. Uh, he's saying has, uh, similar to has not, that has made everyone into music players. Say so, Hey, now everyone can listen to the radio. Everyone will know how to play. That's not how it works. People will just consume it, uh, by listening. They will not all go out and learn because if anything, it will lessen the number of people who need to learn how to play. Uh, and so as gaming has become popular, it's saying the pool of people with skills to play games has not broadened. I think it has broadened tremendously simply from exposure, but it's still a vanishingly small percentage of the total people who play Angry Birds or whatever. So finally, I think this is the end of the game thing. Oh no, God, this goes on forever. Games as art. This is something that I mentioned uh, we heard, we heard about in the previous letter and a couple of people uh, wrote in to ask me about. Uh, David Shee uh, writes in to say one thing that interests me greatly is why so many gamers seem to feel the need to defend games as being art I'm not sure what the goal is here uh, is it being labeled as art somehow give games a magic shield or invulnerability from criticism uh, you know what why, why is it that gamers want games to be known as art uh, and in a past show I mentioned that I was, just thought that they were and that wasn't something I wanted to talk about but I think it's worth discussing now because people keep bringing it up I think the, you know, why, why, why do gamers feel the need to defend games as being art? It's mostly defensive, I think. It's, it's not something that I ever saw offered by gamers. Like They weren't promoting it until uh, there was an attack, until many people would say the games aren't hard. Uh, so it's, it's a reaction to people trying to bel- belittle gaming. And obviously the, the reaction of gamers to people trying to belittle gaming is to defend. So it's entirely defensive in my view. Uh, and why are they defending? Why do they even care? Well gamers want other people to experience what they experience, uh but gaming they know gaming has like this stigma as a as a time waster and a, and a frivolous thing, and they think it's great, and maybe no one will say anything until the until someone tr- comes out and says, "Oh well you know games are, are are not art and art is something good and and something that's not art is lesser and we are now saying that games will always be stupid time wasters and they're not a worthwhile pursuit and then gamers get upset about that uh, as many people who wrote in. And many people who have debated this online and stuff have pointed out people said the same thing about the novel. Uh, you know, this is a silly time waster. Uh, Mitchell Cohen wrote in to give me a uh, his passage here. He says the first 18th century novels were stigmatized as trifling indulgences for idle women since their contents were fictional and therefore of no use to working adults. And there are many things you can Google for the things that were said about novels because it just seemed like garbage whereas today novels are like oh my child is reading books isn't that wonderful no one says well he's reading fiction that trash he needs to get out and plow the fields or i don't know what they wanted you to do instead of i guess read nonfiction, or uh you know learn about fake science uh (laughs) so it's kind of natural for any new medium to go through this thing where people say it's not worthwhile it's it's uh, it rots your brain. It's not a worthy intellectual pursuit. It's not art or whatever. And video games are a new medium. So you, I think you have to expect this. Uh, now Roger Morgan wrote in to say, I have to take issue with the way you begged the question regarding the notion of video games, uh, that video games are an art form. Perhaps they are, but you simply asserted this and then drew a conclusion based on that assertion. So Roger Morgan is probably very proud of himself for successfully using beg the question, uh, which is very rare on the internet. Uh, the wrong way for people who don't know that they use it is they use it to mean, which leads me to ask the question. So, you know, this begs the question that blah, blah, blah. What you're trying to say is, this leads me to ask the question X, Y, and Z. But that's not what beg the question actually means. I put a link to the Wikipedia page, of course, in the show notes about this. The little summary here is uh, begging the question is a type of logical fallacy in which a proposition is made that uses its own premise as proof of the proposition. So, despite Roger using the phrase correctly, I don't think it applies to what I was talking about because I was using games as art as a premise. Uh, and it, it, sort of if you accept the games are art, then I say the games have an odd characteristic most found, not found in most other forms of art. It's not like games as art was being used to support the proposition that games have a skill barrier to consumption, right? It was the premise. And yeah, you can reject the premise and then you don't, you, know, you don't agree with me, that's fine. But it wasn't, them being art was not used to support my proposition that there's a skill barrier to consumption and that they're odd among art forms. Uh, so I, I would say that that is a correct use of the phrase, but not entirely applicable. Uh, but on the, on the substance of what you're saying, oh, well, here he says, he says he's neutral on this topic. Having, having, never having been particularly drawn to these games, I would be genuinely interested to know how you come to the conclusion that they're an art form. Are you t- talking from the creative perspective of the players? I'd love to hear the reasoning. Uh, on the internet and on podcasts, I have not been particularly interested in defending this premise that I have. Like I mentioned it just offhand in the last of that hey, but I do strongly believe that they are art. But really, the reason it's not an interesting debate to me, because it's, it's semantics. It's not games are art. It's really my definition of art either includes or excludes games. Because games are what they are. Right? And so, all you're really debating is what your definitions of art are. So, lots of people say, well, my definition of art doesn't include games, and here's why. And other people say, well, my definition does include And then you just debate forever about your definitions of art. It doesn't change what games are. My definition of art includes games. If yours doesn't, then, you know, fine. If we can agree on a definition, then we can have a debate about whether games qualify, but always the debate is the other way people are just shifting around their definitions to conform to what they wanted not saying before we begin a debate we would agree we agree that this is art and then we can argue about whether games qualify you're That's saying
0: the, you need you need uh, a definition of art to begin with before you can even engage in a debate with these people you I, would need you just, to have that first agreement as a presupposition
1: yeah otherwise you're just goalpost moving the whole time all you're doing is just shifting around your definition like you I see that in all the time with the mostly for the people who are like uh, obviously, I'm reading. I'm reading the ones where the people who are uh, saying it's not art are getting trashed, right? So they'll they'll say games are not art because art has to do X, Y, and Z, and then 50 gamers will write in and say, "Well, here these games do X, Y, and Z," and they'll say, "Well, also art has to do P, Q, and X," and th- like it's just constant back and forth. So they keep changing the definition because every they'll make a definition. They're like, "Well, you know." Uh, art has to evoke emotional reaction. This is obviously made up, right? But this is a uh, silly example. Art has to evoke emotional reaction. Games cannot evoke emotional reaction. Therefore, games are not art. And so dudes write in and say, I cried when I'm playing this game. for <laughs> reaction, right? Uh, and then they say, well, but art also has to, and they just keep changing. You know, you're just shifting the goalposts constantly. That's the way many internet debates go. And so those were silly examples, but that's what I see a lot of. And it's like, it, they coming to an agreement about what art is, it's almost as difficult about coming to an agreement about what life is. And I find the life one much more interesting because I know so much less about biology. Actually, I Actually, wish I had a link to this, but there's some, some good articles in recent years about uh, the increasing realization among scientists that there is no reasonable definition of what life is. <laughs> because every time you try to define it, like there's some exception is found. And eventually it's like, life, there's no such thing as life. <laughs> you know, you, The definition is so broad now that it encompasses everything. And it's impossible to exclude anything because we keep finding counterexamples. And so what the hell is life? It makes no sense. I always like things like that. Uh, But for art, I bet there probably is a definition. But if you're going to debate with somebody about whether games are or not, you have to agree on that definition. And that's, I think, where it would end because my definition totally necessarily includes it and they would not agree to my definition and so debate over. So I'm not particularly interested in defending it. I would just say that I think games are worthwhile are worthy of your investment of time and uh, and effort and emotion and everything. And they're as worthy as any form of art, whether you think games are art or not. Uh, I think they are among the most worthy thing you could possibly do with your time uh, for entertainment purposes. And that's, that's the point I would try to get across to somebody. And I wouldn't try to convince them that games are art. I would try to convince them that games are something that it should be part of their life in some way because they're worthwhile and they can decide what they think about them. Right. Oh, so the end of this thing from Roger, it says people who enjoy football aren't clamoring to find legitimacy by being described as art. Reality TV shows don't seem to feel the need to define themselves as art. So why is there such a preoccupation with gamers? Does it make games any less enjoyable or less legitimate if they aren't art? Again, I don't think it's a preoccupation with gamers until they were attacked. I think a lot of people in the TV industry would be really upset and vocal if a well-known movie critic publicly proclaimed that like TV shows can never be art. If if there was some sort of critic in, or some sort of person in another industry or someone in theater that says theater is art, but television shows can never be art. Not like a particular reality show is not art, not the new housewives of whatever county is not art, but TV shows can never be art. If anyone who had any sort of public platform came out to say that, especially with someone associated with another medium like theater or something. Oh, right. You the people all of a sudden you'd be hearing all these TV shows. And then people were saying, Why are these TV people also preoccupied with their considering their medium art? What are they trying to prove? Because they were just working under the assumption, like gamers were, that of course television shows can be art. Like there's no exclusion of of course they can. And it was just that you never heard them talk about it because, like, duh, like the same way gamers pretty much all say, Oh, of course games are art. You know, like is that a debate? Until someone comes out and says, Games as a concept can never be art. And then you get a lot of crankiness. So I think it is defensive. It's not offensive. They're not, you know, they're not out trying to evangelize games as art. But when someone starts crapping on them and saying that it's not, you would see exactly the same thing in any other media. I think. And people say, well, well, of course, TV shows actually are. Art. That's why they would complain. But games aren't. Yeah. Well, you see how it goes. One final one in games, and then we'll probably have to cap this. But we'll see.
0: Let's do our final sponsor then. Oh, you got three today. Okay. Yeah, we have three. Go for it. Because when the shows get longer. You know we've got to we've got to subsidize the cost.
1: Yeah, because because every second that I talk is is another
0: fifteen cents. Eighty three minutes, forty three seconds so far. Yep. And the hard drive can only handle another three hundred eighteen. <laughs> so, all right. Squarespace.com. They just added so. So first of all, what is Squarespace? Because there there are probably a few people who don't know. It's everything you need to create an amazing website. They do the hosting of it. They scale it when you get a lot of traffic. They have really, really great analytics, and they have 24-7 support in case you run into trouble. They've got beautiful templates, more than 85, 85 professionally designed style variants from big-time designers. You point and click control over every single element, or you can just completely customize it on your own. It has integration with all the social tools that you like to use, but here's the big thing. This is the big news. They now have free custom domain names. It's free if you sign up for uh, a year with them. If you don't sign up for a year, it's it's not free. But they register it all in one one step. So you go in there. You've never used Squarespace before. You sign up. You create your account. And you register the domain name. It takes minutes. And you have a full-fledged site up and running. You don't have to go to a separate registrar. You don't have to do it. It's all integrated. It's all right there. And it's free if you sign up for their 1 year thing, now you don't have to. You can go month to month with them. It's 10 bucks a month if you do that. If you sign up for a year, it goes down to 8 bucks a month and you can get the free domain. And if you use the coupon code Dan sent me 5, the number 5 Dan sent me, number 5, you get an additional 10% off. So if you just want to go month to month, then you get 10% off. You go for a year, you get the domain, you get 8 bucks a month, and then you apply the domain, yeah, the coupon code on top of it. It's a pretty good deal. These guys are really great. Squarespace.com. I'm moving as much as I can over to them. Because I'm just, I'm tired of dealing with hosting stuff myself if I don't have to. It's all going there. Squarespace.com. Dan sent me five. That's all you need to know.
1: They should do like one of those late night TV infomercial or commercial things where there's always some device they want you to buy, like that takes the shell off an egg or something. (laughs) And they show like, Making eggs is such a pain. <laughs> show the person trying to make eggs like the eggs are in their hair and the eggs are up their nose. Right. And like, it's just everything is a disaster and their hair is all frazzled and they, they look at the camera and go, oh, I'm so exasperated. And then you see the new shiny things. So it, it's very difficult to show the frustration of bad hosting on television. But if they could pull it off. Yeah. It would be great. Uh, so would my be friend fun. John reminds me that the fallacy I was trying to get at before with the, the, the goalpost moving is the no true, no true Scotsman thing. I should put that in the show notes too. People who don't know what that is, they can Google it. Uh, D.C. in the chat room is saying that uh, the games as art thing has gone way beyond defensiveness. Uh, I would say, yes, it's a counterattack at this point. Uh, And I think it's kind of a wake up call because, again, uh, you don't see television show people, producers of television shows out there evangelizing the fact that television shows are art. And why didn't you see that? Because no one is questioning that. Like, it's just an assumption that we all agree on, right? Not that all TV shows are art, but that TV shows can be art. Like, that it is possible. That it is not excluded categorically by the medium or whatever, right? And I think gamers and gaming was in that state for a long time. We're like, well, it was just an assumption. And when it was revealed that this assumption was not shared by the rest of society, then you get the counterattack. So, yeah, it's going to be on, on offensive now for a long time. It's an activist-type movement. But... Uh, but it was triggered by, uh, you know, it's it's defensive in origin. Like, everyone, they were gamers are sitting there going, da. of course it's games, just like the TV people are now. Uh, so that's what I feel about that. Uh, so someone suggested, by the way, and this will probably be in the show things, The Housewives of Syracuse County. I don't know if we can double up on the county thing. I think we can. Yeah, I know you like it. But it really is totally disjoint. It just happens to share the structure and the names because it's different. You know, it's a television show instead of movie, reality, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. We'll see how I feel about that. I like it. So here's one from another gamer, Michael O'Hara. No apostrophe, no space. Capital O, capital H. does sound like a real name, though. Yeah. It says, I was really into games like Myst Riven and such. I certainly believe that my methodical troubleshooting nature helped me develop very high skills to play these types of games. I watched a number of people in my crowd who just couldn't get how to do these kinds of things you describe in today's games, like moving around, visual acuity, shortcuts, etc., And his conclusion is some of us can be very skilled indeed with the complex, difficult games, just not the kind of games you're talking about. This is definitely true. There is a whole other category of games which, as many people are sad about, has become much less popular. But the kind of games where the skill barrier to entry is not about physical hand-eye coordination so much as puzzle solving and problem solving. Like, it used to be that 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 was a whole very popular genre of games. Like Like Myst. Yeah, or the, you know, the Sierra text, uh, the Sierra graphical adventures oh, like sure. and stuff. And before that, the text adventure games where you were being faced with basically brain teaser type puzzles of varying levels of fairness. There's a good and comparable podcast about text adventures that people should find if they're interested. Uh, you played Ultima, right? No, I did not play Ultima. Hmm. Well, I, I might have side saddle played that. I remember I, I had a Mac, so any game that was only available on a PC, I would have to watch my friend play over his house or help him play. But I don't think we really got into Ultima. We did Eye of the Beholder and a couple of SSI stuff, but not Ultima. Uh,
0: so well, the, Ultima Ultima is a Commodore 64 game. Well, I'm I mean, PC. I'm I'm not saying it wasn't a PC game for me. The way I think of it, the early Ultima's Commodore 64.
1: Yeah. No, I never had a C64. I had a VIC 20. Yeah. Not bad. Not a bad machine. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> uh, so he, he goes on to bemoan the current state of games. The games today have gone on the same road Gone the same road to perdition that happens to movies. Movies today are almost entirely about shock and awe, the CGI and violence. Scene one, you've probably seen most of them. The state of games today is the same. No one makes mind-challenging games like Riven anymore. They are a much smaller percentage of the market. That is true. This type of adventure game is now so narrow that only a few super nerds are into it, and these are nerds who they have a different kind of skills. Where you put you put the average person in front of like *Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy* text adventure, they get nowhere, uh, and you could say, well, they could get somewhere if they even cared, but there's no way they're going to bang their head against that wall because, and again, this gets back to, can they learn that skill versus will they learn it? I, you know, The end result is the same. They will not finish that game. Whether because they can or, or never could or just simply don't want to learn, they won't. But there are people who do like these kinds of games and, and uh, there, are, there are a smaller percentage of the market than they used to be. I agree with that. Uh, so his second conclusion is they're only making games that are 100 different ways to kill. No wonder, as a society, we have a problem with men desensitized to violence. I would say about this and about, you know, games like Riven and as a percentage of the overall gaming and uh, games just being shock and awe and stuff like that, in the absence of any kind of artificial controls, any mass media is going to end up with a mix of content that reflects human nature. And a lot of people don't like that reflection. Like, I think, you know, if you don't have any sort of controls, like where there's someone determining what is worthy of being shown or whatever, those kind of artificial controls where, uh, you know, some powerful cabal in Hollywood decides that, or, you know, the comic book code is an example from your world. they just decide that there's only going to be a certain kind of things that they think are appropriate to see in comic books and stuff like that.
0: Right. Those no are vampires, artif- no vampires.
1: Yeah. Those are artificial controls, right? But in the absence of artificial controls, any kind of media, TV, books, movie, any kind of art form, painting, music, anything is going to be a reflection of human nature percentage wise. And like it or not, you know, adolescent <laughs> boys like killing things and they like sexy ladies and all these things that we, you know, that intellectually we, we think are, you know, base and, and not particularly enlightened. If you don't have some sort of control forcing the media to avoid the things that we think aren't enlightened, you're going to end up with that, right? Uh, and one of the artificial controls is obscurity. If a media like games is obscure, a lot of people don't even know about it, don't even play it. Uh, there's such a small audience that it's not yet such a giant lucrative draw that it can't be resisted, right? Uh, it, it takes less willpower to produce, produce sophisticated games when you're not uh, foregoing a giant windfall by doing so, right? You say, well, there's only like 50 people in the whole world who play games anyway, so I don't need to make the Space Marine, you know, shoot 'em up uh, uh, boob space galaxy adventure game when... I'm not going to get any more of the market than I would if I just sold like a really sophisticated, interesting text. I'll get 100% of the market by selling the, the Hitchhiker's Guide you know, to text adventure game for these nerds. I don't have to, to dumb it down and make it broader, right? Uh, but now the gaming is widespread. You, it starts to become more, like movies, become more of a reflection of society as a whole percentage-wise. There are great movies. Uh, but they are a small percentage, very enlightened movies. You know, they're, then there are movies that just appeal to our baser instincts, and they make a lot of money, and so they keep getting made. That's capitalism, right? Uh, but all that said, I think there are more good games available today than ever. There, yes, they are a smaller percentage of the overall thing, and yes, there's you know the ones that get the most publicity and have awareness are those very broad games that are not particularly sophisticated uh, and don't appeal to those you know discerning gamers, right? That's what gets the press, but in terms of raw numbers, I think there are more great games now than there ever were, simply because there are just more games overall. So Michael continues, if the definition of skills is simply a premium on fast reaction and kill before being killed, that leaves behind a whole whole lot of other skills, usually ones that require some intelligence and at least value thought over raw primal skills. Uh, It's not that they're being pushed into premium, it's just a different kind of skill barrier. Uh, And the skill barrier I'm talking about is it's much worse than like, you know, very few people can, can play through one of those text adventure games or will play through them because they find them frustrating and not that interesting and it's just kind of obscure and you have to be really into that. Kind of like people who are into like super hard crossword puzzles. Most people like crossword puzzles, but at a certain point, you're weeding everybody out and it's like, oh, well, these people seek out the super hard crossword puzzles because that's what they need to to be a challenge and to be interesting to them, right? I'm talking more about games that really are broad. Like I think Journey is a super broad game that anyone can appreciate without any history in gaming and knowing anything about it, except for the fact that they can't successfully play it. And that's the frustrating thing to me that, that that is not a really obscure thing or that, that only a few people can appreciate that, but it's just regular people being prevented from experiencing it because they lack these basic skills to play games that really don't have anything to do with the game. They just assume that you're supposed to have it. Uh, he continues as someone who parents kids, I don't like kids playing such violent trash. And no, World of Warcraft is not analogous to Pinochle. This kind of rationalization drives me crazy. And his final conclusion, society is in decline. We are doomed, but young people haven't figured it out. And there are too many older folks who will sell the young whatever they want. So, in reaction to this letter, I will quote this thing that I googled the heck out of to try to find the sourcing for, but the Google results were totally destroyed by spammy... Or reposting garbage results. Google mm. really needs to get their act together. Children, the children now love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority, and they show disrespect for elders and love chatter in place of exercise. Children are now tyrants, not the servants of their households. They no longer rise when elders enter the room. They contradict their parents, chatter before company, gobble up dainties at the table, cross their legs, and tyrannize their teachers. <laughs> this probably poorly translated, probably misattributed quote about the kids today often seen on the internet is attributed by Plato to Socrates around 420 BC. So kids today, it's eternal refrain. What they're doing is bad. They're badly behaved. They're going to hell in a handbasket. Socrates thought it in 400 something BC. Every person thinks it today. I don't think it's any more or less true at any one of those times. I think World of Warcraft (laughs) is analogous to Pinocchio in the sense that I was discussing it, which is, The idea that certain things that you play as a child, you should stop playing as an adult because they're frivolous. And no one seems to say that about Pinochle, as people continue to play it well into old age. But for video games, a media that did not exist when the current generation of old people were young... uh, they think it's some crazy thing that the kids are doing and it's surely it's only for kids. Three generations from now, when we're th- three generations through, adults, you know, we're long past the point where adults are the vast majority of gamers, but many generations from now, from the people who were not alive, uh, uh, people who were alive when there were no video games, all of them are dead. I think it will be more like Pinochle. Uh, Michael doesn't give any particular arguments about why it's not analogous to Pinochle. Probably because Pinochle existed before he was born, but video games did not. That is my guess. So when I listen to myself in this episode, we'll see how much about gaming I miss. But I think I got it all. Does it, am I am I leaving any holes here? You're asking me. You're the you're the gamer. You're the expert. I know. I, I, this is the, the three episode attempt to articulate some half form topic that I could not have written about successfully because obviously I hadn't thought it through enough. And yet we get three shows worth of content out of it. I think, I think it's it's interesting for me to think about again, getting back to Merlin's thing is the the podcast being like a first draft on your ideas. I think this is a useful exercise. It's produced a lot of good, thoughtful feedback and, and blog posts and tweets about it. So I hope people enjoyed it as well. People, people love your discussion of
0: gaming. They wish there was a gaming show and they wish you would do it
1: yeah well, you know I can't do a gaming show and this show, and as, as uh, I think I've discussed this before, but you keep bringing it up so i 'll talk about it again uh The reason I don't think I could do a regular gaming podcast is because I don't play enough games gaming in a gaming podcast, people want to hear about you know what do you think about this game and and every time that would come up, i would say, i don't know, I haven't played it i don't know I haven 't played it i don't know I haven't played it i don't plan to play it i am not qualified to do that i' don't well, me, let me let me let me toss
0: out an, an idea for you It's just an idea you're going to have to run with this if you want to do it uh but here's my response to that uh statement which you repeat every time. What if we were to start a Kickstarter project so that those interested could subsidize a salary for you to do your own gaming show podcast assuming we could not get any sponsors for it and they could raise enough to you know create a salary for you for several years and then you could do a gaming show and you would have enough time because now you're in all of your free time whatever your hands could Physically do, could be spent playing games,
1: and then you could talk about them. Yeah, you're, you've you've correctly found the other problem, which is that even if I had a limited time, could I actually physically play all these games? Probably, yeah. not. Probably, Probably not. Probably not. Yeah.
0: Do you it, do you know how what your physical limits would be without you know creating an, an injury? Uh, For those who don't know what we're talking about, John, I I don't know the episode number offhand. Maybe you remember it. Number uh, six, I think. Okay, so episode. I'll verify that, but episode number six. Uh, you detail the RSI uh, issues that you have and that those uh, frivolous things, yes, RSI, travel phobia, uh, I'll put that into the show notes. You detail that you have some issues with RSI, and that is why you dictate uh, many of your long articles that you write about Mac OS X. It's also a limiting factor in how many games you could play as well as how much typing you can do. But what if you were to, if you were no longer typing at work, if your work was playing games, perhaps it would balance out. Perhaps if the audience is serious enough,
1: they I, could I raise enough. To, I would be able to play more games, but probably not enough to be. Like, I I see how many games, like the, the actual game was like Ben Kuchera, who used to work for ours, now works with Penny Arcade. He plays just a tremendous number of games. I know how long he's playing the games, because I know how long these games take to complete, and I know which games he's completed. Right. And I just could not take that much. Just Just couldn't. I mean... It, it even comes up with typing, like when I'm doing documentation at work, that involves a lot more typing than programming because it's less like pausing to think or moving around or compiling or like clicking around in a web browser, you know what I mean? Because documentation is just like writing straight. Yeah, a, and, good, a good
0: programmer, you might even say, a good programmer doesn't type that much.
1: Yeah, well, you, it's not, it, it, at the very least, there's more break. So I find even just when I'm doing lots of documentation, that starts reaching my limits. If I was playing a video game with a controller for that amount of time, I could not do it. So mainly, the reason I don't think I should do a game thing is I don't think I'm qualified. You obviously disagree. Many other listeners disagree. But I think the important (laughs) person here is whether I think I'm qualified. And I wouldn't, I would never collect Kickstarter money to do something I'm not qualified for, especially since that's such a thing with Kickstarter where people are now worried. Like, so I'm giving all this money Am I'm actually going to get anything. I, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm qualified to do a gaming podcast. And I think gaming is on topic-ish for this thing. And whenever we want to talk about gaming, we can, you know.
0: That's fine, you know, but the listeners will have to accept
1: that. Yeah, I mean, sometimes we'll talk about file systems. You know, you never know what you're going to get. You don't know. It's a mixed bag. Yeah. Well, that's not, not the analogy I would use. It's not the expression I would use. Box of chocolates. Neg- yeah, well, man, we're getting better. A mixed bag is, has a, a negative connotations because it's like some good and some bad.
0: It's an unknown quantity.
1: Yeah. All right, are we done? I, was, I do have a few more little things we want to do, them, but we can stop here if you'd like to. Right, I mean, let, let's let's have, w- w- wait a minute. What is a few more little things? I got the Dropbox App Store reject- rejections. I've got a little bit of Instagram uh, and then some like remainder stuff. So another couple hours. <laughs> well, you know, it's up to you. We can we can be done here. I'll save those for the next show if you want. Or I can do one of them. It's so your of them show. Or you you do what you want to do. Uh, do you have a schedule today you need to keep to? I do, but I'm already
0: late for my appointment. So now at this point, you know, <laughs> well, then the we'll Whole day screwed. So, whatever then you know, we whatever stop, you do, it's then, uh, let's do it. Let's go for it. Let's do another couple hours.
1: No, yeah, we should stop then if you have to be somewhere. No,
0: that's it. I'm, I'm already, I already think I had to cancel it
1: because it's, All right. I'm already late. Well, you know, you were late to start this. So I know. I can't, can't put that entirely on no, me. No, not entirely. I just to just drop our Dropbox App Store rejections because I think that will be short.
0: Well, let's see. Let's see. Don't, don't limit yourself. People love it when you go. When you, when you do like a, a two three hour show i mean that's what people really that's
1: what they line up for that's what the listeners want you know give them what they want i've done three hour uncomfortables but they always split it into two shows that's something you could consider. we could take these long ones you could you break it up into two shows and the live listeners get to hear it all but everyone else just has to wait
0: but then Find would it. we would we not do another show the following week
1: i don't know you double it up you, could, you start banking things
0: <laughs> you know give yourself some time off by by working a little bit harder yeah, that's right
1: are actually working the same amount, but just putting a cut in the middle of the podcast.
0: I say do, do both of the topics. Do the Dropbox thing and do the Instagram thing.
1: All right. Uh, we'll see. So the Dropbox App Store rejections I know you did talk about. These are a- applications submitted to the iOS App Store that are being rejected because within the interface, there's some sort of Dropbox integration. And when you try to integrate and you don't have an account, it says, you know, enter your login information here. But if you don't have an account, you know, go here and you can get a Dropbox account. And that eventually leads you to a Dropbox page where you you know enter your information. And even though Dropbox accounts are free, there's also a way to give them money. Uh, and Apple's rejecting it because under the umbrella of, if you have an iOS application, you can't solicit money from people through a web interface. So Amazon Kindle application can't link to Amazon.com to buy books. You can't even link to the web page. Like you can't certainly you can't do it in the UI. You can't have like a built-in UI. Um, a friend of mine does an uh, ebook reader called eReader, or he wrote. It the original version of it as a contractor. And they had an interface inside it where without leaving the application, you could buy eBooks, which makes perfect sense. Right. Uh, but Apple eventually put, uh, you know, cut that out. So it was like, all right, everyone, everyone says, I oh, can't do that. We'll just put a link to our website, go here to get books. And you tap there and it launches mobile Safari and you can buy books. And Apple said, no, 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 we don't like that either. No, no going elsewhere. And so now people are just doing merely doing integration with Dropbox using their SDK or whatever. Apparently there's some standard part of the SDK that eventually leads you to a screen on the Dropbox website which could potentially optionally take some money from you if you wanted to pay the money for uh, you know a non-free Dropbox account. And Apple's putting the hammer down on those, saying, no, 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 you can't do that. So Gruber talked a lot about how he doesn't think this is a particular attack on Dropbox, and I agree it's not some sort of particular vendetta because Apple's trying to move into the cloud storage space or anything. It's just a natural extension of their existing policy on things. But the place where I part ways with what Gruber was suggesting, and I think you might agree with me a little bit more on this because when you were talking about it, it, seemed like you were more on my side, is it's not about the 30% cut. It's not like, oh, Apple's got to get their 30% cut. It, Apple doesn't make money off 30% cut of sales. Like That's just enough to have, help keep the lights on for their business. Apple makes all their money by selling hardware. The, the amount of money they make off software and other services is negligible. Uh compared to the rest of their money. Yeah,
0: I think people so, ought, ought to think about that, uh, anything relating to iTunes or any of that, as just break-even for Apple. If they And I think that's how Apple thinks of it, as either slightly losing money or break-even, and if they do a little bit better, they, hey, we, get, we do a little bit better. But for them, it's it's all part of selling hardware. This is a vehicle to selling hardware.
1: Yeah, and, and like, it doesn't mean they don't care about it. Where Apple makes its money doesn't mean like, oh, that's their entire focus, and they don't care about software. That way. They care about everything, but like, the place, you know, the place where the money comes from isn't the thing they concentrate on. That's one of the great things about Apple. It's like just because they make all their money from hardware doesn't mean, oh, well, then forget the software. Screw that. We don't care about the software. We don't care about services. They see it all as a piece. And where the money happens to come from is just kind of like, well, that's that's where we can happen to make money. Uh, and so they're not optimizing their entire company just in the part they're making money for. But it's clear that there's not some sort of strategy like, oh, geez, the future of the company depends on getting those 30% cuts. Because they've clearly seen that with the way things currently are now, the big money—they their income comes from the, the, the what they get, the profits they get on hardware, and they need to do all this other stuff too. Now, if that shifted someday, if suddenly like their hardware margins disappeared and their software volumes drastically increased, and suddenly they're making the vast majority of the money from this thirty percent cut, then that argument would be true. Like, oh, they need the thirty percent cut. But at this point, no, it's not about getting the thirty percent cut of everything because getting or not getting a thirty percent cut of like ebook sales and stuff is not going to make or break their business. They could double their software revenues and would still be totally dwarfed by the iPhone alone, right? It's just not the way their business is structured now. And I don't think they're trying to shift their business so that oh, we feel uncomfortable making all this har- this profit on hardware. We would rather make the profit on software or, or services. If anything, I think it's the other way. I think Apple is the master of its own destiny much more on the hardware market than they are in trying to get a cut of other people's sales uh, because that is a much more tenuous business where you don't have control over all the factors you have to rely on people submitting applications to you and selling things to their store and so on and so forth. And by the way, one side tangent there that Gruber was trying to express how a 30% cut was not tenable for people who are selling ebooks. So Amazon can't sell ebooks through the iOS like, you know, in-app purchase thing uh, because it doesn't work financially and he tried to give an example and couldn't come up with one. I should have researched this better but just listening to the podcast. Back when I was in the ebook business way back when in two thousand, I could give you an example from then, which shows how we couldn 't have uh, done a thirty percent cut and that was because and i don 't know people can tell me in various emails which one of these things i'm i don't know if this is the agency model or not the agency model or whatever But i 'm just going to tell you how things were in two thousand and two and why at that time this this thirty percent cut would not have worked and I assume the current situation is if not identical, then similar just you know financially speaking. Uh, the publishers would give us eBooks and we would sell them. And when we sold one, we would owe them a percentage of the list price for that eBook. So let's say the list price is $10 to make it simple. Right. And they needed like, you know, a a 30% this wasn't, these aren't real numbers, but a a 30% uh, royalty. Right. So when we sold that book, we needed to give them $3. Right. But nobody would sell the books for list price. Everyone had the same book and everyone wanted to sell it as cheap as possible. So what's the cheapest you can possibly sell that book for? You can sell the book for $3 and one cent, give the $3 for the publisher and make one cent back. And because of competition among booksellers, the prices really drove themselves down. So yeah, the list price may have been $10, but everyone's selling the books for like $3 and 50 cents, $3 and 99 cents because they know they owe the publisher $3 no matter what. And it's like, well, how much profit can I eke out of that by driving my prices down? Because if you drive your prices down, you get more customers to come to you. Uh, in that model, when everyone's selling, when you owe the publisher $3 and everyone's selling the books for like $3.50 or whatever, there's no way you can give another $3 to Apple, right? Because then you'd have to raise your price to $6.01 to make $0.01 cent of profit. And you'd be out of business. You know, you would lose to the people who are continuing to sell it for $3.50. It would just be so much cheaper. Uh, so that's an example. Not, maybe that's not the way it is now, but that's one example of how there just isn't a number 30, another 30% to go to anybody uh, in these cases. I think, and now I'm going to start talking out of my butt. I think the problem with Amazon was that Amazon was selling books below cost and losing money in every sale, thus driving down the perceived value of ebooks and making it more difficult for publishers to sell their ebooks at higher prices to other vendors, and they didn't like that. And so I think the model they have now is where the, the publishers are forcing the sellers to sell it at a certain amount, not just asking for a particular percentage. But I think either of those models. Due to competition, makes a situation where there's just not another thirty percent cut for another middleman because Amazon is a reseller and they want to cut up with the sales and the publisher wants their piece and if Apple wants another piece, it's just it's, it's not it's untenable. The prices go up too high, right? So I don't know if I did any better than Gruber there, but I do know that my example I gave about the when I was in the ebook industry was accurate in two thousand two uh, and is a is one example of how there might not be enough room for for another person to take a cut. Uh, but I think you know. That this not allowing you to go someplace else uh, to pay money, even in like the silly example where it's like so indirect where you really, you know, you just it's just a Dropbox integration with an app that happens to lead you to get a Dropbox account that happens to possibly ask you for money and how ridiculous it is that they're stopping that. It's not about Apple wanting a piece of that money because I think in many of these cases, especially in ebooks, Apple knows it's never going to see a cut of that. Like it, it's not dumb it didn't like say aha oh, now we're going to get 30 percent cut of all ebooks and then it was all sad when nobody started selling ebooks <laughs> through an app purchase they know they're not they know the realities of the business better than anybody. they have their own bookstore yeah apple can sell them in there because they don't owe themselves you know an extra 30 percent right and that's a competitive advantage and that's that apple strategy tax thing that i talked about a while ago uh but they knew they weren't going to get that 30 percent cut so enforcing this rule is not a way for them to we need to turn the screws so we can get some of that money all you're doing is driving those people out uh and many people say you're making the experience worse because it wouldn't it be better if on an iOS device inside the Kindle app you could buy books? Wouldn't that be better for everybody? What is Apple's problem? Isn't Apple is making its user experience where they're like, oh, it's all about the user experience. We want it to be nice. Well, isn't aren't you making crappier apps? Why can't I buy the the books inside my Kindle app? It's it seems like it's anti-user and you know and that's why people start thinking well we know it's not good for the users because obviously we'd all like to buy our ebooks inside the kindle app so what is apple's motivation oh they must be greedy they want a 30 percent cut and they're not letting you sell it or they want they want to provide an advantage to their bookstore which can sell inside the app i don't even know if the Apple's app does that but they certainly could because they make the rules right and they don't owe themselves an extra 30 uh, percent i think though that it actually is, perhaps a misguided, but I think Apple's actual motivation for this rule set is is user-focused. What they want is they want, when you launch an app, not a website, but when you launch an app by tapping an icon on the home screen, it's not one of those little website things, Apple, and, and then you pay money for anything inside that application or from that application, Apple wants to control that experience. And the reason they want to is not so they can make money from everybody or not so they can provide advantages for the iBook store, but it's so... Everyone who uses an iOS device knows what to expect and feels comfortable spending money inside applications. Uh, And the lack of fear, like not being afraid to spend stuff, is good for everyone selling anything on the platform. And what they're trying to prevent is, like they have this hugely popular platform, like hojillions of applications are being sold. Who wouldn't want to be in on that? They're trying to prevent their gigantic platform with tons of users and tons of people From being hijacked by people who basically just want to spam you with ways to make money, make money fast. Like in this, in their nightmare scenario, every single app you buy in the app store, you can't tap on anything without being sent somewhere to put money in, and it's not. Using Apple's payment framework, it's like every time I launch an app, someone's asking me for money, and I don't know who these people are, and I don't know what websites are sending me to, and I don't want to spend money in any apps because I know that every single time I launch an application, they're like collecting money. Give me money here, give me money there, and it's like I enter my credit card here, enter my credit card there, yeah, hook this up to PayPal. I don't know what I'm doing anymore. I'm so terrified that I don't want to spend money in any application. This, I think, is what Apple is trying to prevent. They do not want is that that's a great way to make money. If you know you have a massive platform with tons of users. Everyone wants to say, launch my application. You know how it says, like, the worst, the example they have now is the ones you launch where it's like, give me a five-star rating. That's annoying as hell, but at least they're not asking for money. It turns people off of rating things and makes people hate the application and stuff, but at least they're not asking for money. If they open this door, every application would be spouting some money-begging thing that would send you off to their own website, scammy or not, that Apple can't control, and the experience would be that people would be afraid to ever give any application money. Apple wants you to never be afraid to do an in-app purchase, never be afraid to spend money. They want you to be confident that it's going through the iTunes thing that you know, that's how you buy apps. That's how you buy music. That's how you buy movies. That's how you buy everything. It, you know, it's your Apple ID. There's only one way to do it. It's a solid, you know, experience that they control that everyone's comfortable with. And that I think actually is good for everyone who's on the platform. Uh, And, it's, you know, that you don't want people to be afraid to spend money. I think if, if people left their own devices, they would make everyone afraid to spend money. And there would be this period where they, they there'd be this gold rush where they take money off from people like crazy. And then everyone would basically say, oh, it's now accepted wisdom in society that, oh, don't give money in application. Those are all a scam, right? That's not the way it is now. People do in-app purchases and feel okay with them. And, and people make a lot of money on it. Uh, and they're not being scammed. And it's an experience that Apple controls. So, I don't know what the solution is here. I think you should be able to buy books inside the Kindle app, but I, but the old motivation I see for Apple not allowing this is because they don't want that scenario. They don't want every application to spawn some random third-party insert money here thing. And I think that is a nightmare scenario, and I think it, there, it, that would happen. So I don't know where the balance is between those two things. I do want to buy Amazon books, but I do not want it to be open season and anybody can collect money in any possible way from an app. That didn't take long. No, it wasn't too bad. Do You agree with that? I mean, because you seem to be down on the uh, they want their thirty percent cut, because that's just when you were talking about with Gruber.
0: I mean, I do, I do agree, and I think this is something that it, we're the and you, you've touched on this before. We've, when last, I mean, we've talked about this issue more or less before. Is the emphasis? I just think Apple's emphasis is always going to be on on as you described it as a safety, you want people to feel completely secure and relaxed about buying something in their ecosystem. And what Apple has done is they've provided a technique. They've provided a system by which anybody who would like to can sell something and they are doing whatever makes the most sense, not for the businesses or the companies that want to sell something, but for the experience of the user there the user shouldn't have to worry or care how this stuff happens behind the scenes and apple says well we're going to guarantee that this feels great and works great and that you're totally safe in the process and if the publishers suffer if the content creators suffer if the companies that are out there that want to get this into the user's hands that those are the ones that will pay the price because we're going to make sure that this works and you know, we're going to make a little bit of money off of it, too. And if you don't want to sell your stuff to these users in the way that we've created, then don't. No, nobody's forcing them to do it, right? So at the end of the day, I think Apple is, you know, yes, they are controlling it, and I think it is fair to say that it's Apple's way of the highway kind of attitude, but they're doing it at least with who the way that they think that the user experience is going to be the the safest, the most beneficial, and the easiest. And, and I just
1: thought of a possible middle ground here, okay. because given all this, given these two tensions here, yeah, I don't know if this even helps. Like what you were talking about, like if they're, they're going to sell through Apple's thing, they just they need some money to cover costs. Right. Uh, the question is, do they need thirty percent for in-app purchases? Well, uh, I don't
0: think like, they do. I mean, I and again, how much does it really cost Apple to do this? It doesn't really cost them anything, really. I mean, how? You I mean, know?
1: well, a lot of it is subsidized, like, you don't know, if, it, like, it's not a direct relationship, like, in-app purchases have to pay for the infrastructure to run in-app purchases. Everything subsidizes everything else. So even just within the world of selling software through yeah. app stores, there's a lot of expenses involved with that and that maybe you don't get any input to cover, like, you know, hosting or bandwidth or something, but that comes from, you know, so, it, you know, budgeting and where the money comes from, that has to be addressed. But imagine this scenario where Apple decides to charge 0% for an app purchases or do do special deals to charge 0% for an app purchases or something like that, right? How does that change the landscape? You still have to go through the App Store. So Apple gets what it wants in terms of user experience where applications are not allowed to send you to some random place to insert money. Like that's what they don't want. The only place you can give money is you must use Apple's infrastructure with their accounts, with their trusted thing. Like it's a familiar experience. So you don't get that nightmare scenario. Uh, and then Amazon can sell books through the store. But it's like, sure, we'll pay 0%. Thumbs up, right? And they love it because they sell way more books and everybody loves it and everybody's happy. Uh, the iBooks people probably don't like it, but whatever. <laughs> What's the, the downside is, oh, you you just lost that 30% cut now. And since we're saying that 30% cut isn't that big of a deal, like, what about that? Is that, would Apple be willing to do that? I, I mean, maybe if, it was, if they perceived it as like, our platform is lesser because some competing platform allows you, know, you to buy Kindle books inside the app, but we don't uh, like they would have to feel some sort of pressure to do that because they're not going to give up the 30% cut voluntarily. They're not going to drop it to zero voluntarily. They have to feel some sort of pressure to do that. I think the pressure is there from you having a crappy app experience. Like, you know, it's, you're in the Kindle app and it's like this unspoken thing, you know, you can, you can get more books. We can't tell you how, but like if you look at the the name and the logo and you put a dot com. <laughs> don't shh, 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 don't say anything. Apple's watching, but you can get books. So, like it's it's silly. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And like that, you know, a, solu- a solution would be uh, Apple doesn't take a thirty percent cut of that anymore. And maybe that's not financially tenable. Maybe Apple doesn't want to turn this business into a a big money loser because taking away all that thirty percent, like if you the costs are significant, they just look small in the pie chart that Horace puts up because the other part of the pie is is again a hojillion dollars. Uh, but like they're big in terms of real money. So would Apple really want to make a long-term business where they know they're losing money? Like, oh, don't worry, that'll be covered by our hardware costs. And, like, and then someday their business changes and they can't make that kind of money in hardware anymore, they would regret that. And it's kind of hard to turn that back to say, oh, remember when we said 0% cut on in-app purchases? Well, it's back up to 30, and then everything changes. So true-to-form Apple is very cautious about this, but that that scenario is one that I imagine would solve everything for everybody except for Apple money-wise. And, and I don't know how big of a deal that is. But I, again, I think there needs to be some sort of pressure for them to do that. And so far, they don't feel it. And I think the reason they don't feel it is because the other competing platforms, well, Android at least, has a little bit of a nightmare scenario going on in it where it is kind of the Wild West and people don't feel as comfortable spending money and people do buy mostly free apps that are ad-supported. And like Apple says, well, we don't really need to compete with that because we're already providing a better experience. No, it's not better in terms of you can't buy Kindle apps and can't buy Kindle books inside the Kindle app, but it is better in the other way. So we think net-net, we're still ahead of them. So they don't feel that pressure, right? But if there was a competing platform that had all the same advantages, but then also, like if someone if someone else did this, you know, equaled Apple and the other measures, which is very difficult to do, but then gave 0% of in-app purchases to itself, and that's how they did it, then maybe Apple would feel that pressure. But right now, it doesn't seem like they're feeling the pressure, and they're just going to say, we'll just we'll, we'll get along like this, it's okay. Uh, people will find a way to get their Kindle books, uh, and we're kind of happy that the iBook store doesn't have that disadvantage and whatever. before I, actually i'm going to i'm going to boot instagram for the next show too could be a big <laughs> could be a big topic i don't think it's that big but i'm going i'm going to boot it just so i can give my friend here his his fair airtime for his uh real time heckling of me during the show which is appreciated his first piece of heckling is that apparently i said fairly unique in the show which made his brain explode uh i apologize for that makes no sense you're right uh, <laughs> and the next bit is about why uh, another aspect of why it is bad for games not to be considered art uh, from the perspective of gamers, uh, and he's looking at it from the perspective of uh, obscenity and the uh, the Jack Thompson stuff. He was that uh, <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> disbarred lawyer who was trying to like sue video game makers for making violent video games and stuff like that. Well, generally in the courts, if something has artistic merit, it's not obscene legally. That's why he, his, the example he gives that the books like Lolita are not attacked as child pornography. I think they are attacked as child pornography. But in general, you know, when something has the the stamp of art on it, uh, it's harder to attack for being obscene. It's like oh, but it has artistic merit. It's not just you know, pornography for, for the sake of pornography. It is it's art that incorporates elements that are similar to them, you know what I mean. Uh, and so if games are not art, they're much more open to charges of being subversive or antisocial or Otherwise, uh, unworthy. Uh, and I think that's that's a good point. It, mostly in terms of the stupid puritanical American culture and our weird legal system, but it is a practical concern. And then he says I should do 50 minutes in Farmville, which I decline. But I think that's enough for one show. It's a lot of gaming, a lot of Dropbox, a <laughs> lot of, I can't even remember what the first, a lot of Ruby, a lot of Ruby in motion. Dishi points out that Australia has even worse crazy corporations Game obscenity laws, and I agree. They also have spiders that eat snakes, so there's that. So, what do we say? We uh, button this one up, All as right. they say. Yes. As they
0: say. As Merlin says. Yep. Yeah. You say it too. So, you can uh, follow John Syracusa on Twitter. S I R A C U S A. There is no Z in Syracusa. And uh, I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter. You can uh, go to. 5x5.tv slash hypercritical slash 66 to uh, follow along as you listen. Uh, you can see all the show notes and links if there was anything there that you were curious about that you wanted to re- read more in depth. The links are all there. Thanks very much to the uh, the lovely uh, helpspot.com ladies uh, who's, who subsidize. Speaking of subsidies, they subsidize those links, so go check them out. And uh, we thank you very much for tuning in. We'll be back. I guess we will be back next week. Isn't that true?
1: Yeah, next week. Next Same week. Time.
0: Next week it is. Have a good one, John.
1: You too.